quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Tuesday, September 5th. And we start with exclusive new CNN reporting this hour. Special counsel Jack Smith is not done investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now he's got his sights set on a connection between fundraising and the push to breach voter equipment. Also this morning, First Lady Jill Biden testing positive for COVID-19. She's doing all right. She's fighting mild symptoms, we're told. She's at home in Delaware. The president has tested negative so far. This, of course, is ahead of his trip to the G20. Also this morning, new signs that an alliance between Russia and North Korea is strengthening. Kim Jong-un expected to meet with Vladimir Putin in Russia to further the nation's arms negotiations. And an urgent message from the mother of that escaped murderer in Pennsylvania. All while police report there have been four separate sightings of the fugitive. Also a mass exodus from the desert in Nevada. Thousands of people finally made it out of Burning Man after days stuck in the mud. Literally, CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, happy Tuesday, everyone. Hope you had a restful Labor Day. And if you worked, thank you for that. We've got exclusive new reporting this hour that shows the widening scope of the federal probe into attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Even though former President Trump was charged a month ago with four criminal counts for orchestrating a broad conspiracy to hold on to power, the special counsel leading that probe, Jack Smith, is still digging. That's according to multiple sources familiar with the investigation. And it raises the possibility that others could still face legal peril. So Jack Smith is following the money. Sources tell us Smith's team of prosecutors has asked two recent witnesses about how money that was raised off baseless claims of voter fraud was spent to fund attempts to breach voting systems in several key states that Joe Biden won. So we know prosecutors have focused their questions on the role specifically of former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, who entered the public consciousness with unsubstantiated claims like this one. We have mathematical evidence in a number of states of massive quantities of Trump votes being trashed, just simply put in the trash like you would on your computer with any file, and uh, Biden votes being injected. As Poppy noted, unsubstantiated and outright lie. Now, you'll remember Powell was indicted in the Georgia election subversion case, but she remains an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case. CNN obtained invoices that show Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, hired forensic firms that access voting equipment in four swing states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. In Georgia, that access looked like this. The Coffee County GOP chair standing by as others inspect the county elections office the day after the attack on the Capitol. We want to bring in CNN's Zachary Cohen who helped break this story. Uh, Zach, there's a ton in here. I think that's important to note the full context of things. But lay out what the special counsel has been investigating since the indictment. Yeah, good morning, guys. Jack Smith is doing exactly what he said he was going to do about a month ago when he indicted 
former President Trump, he's still digging. And sources are telling me and our colleague Paula Reed that he's focusing on a, a few key areas. And one, as you mentioned, is following the money and looking into Sidney Powell and her nonprofit, uh, Defending the Republic. You'll remember that Sidney Powell raised a lot of money. It's really, we're not sure how much, but it was a lot, a lot of money based on these lies. The election was stolen. She then said that this Defending the Republic group was something that could help fund the legal challenges that she and other Trump lawyers were basically um, putting forward in key swing states, trying to dispute the outcome there. But, you know, Jack Smith has been asking at least two witnesses about Sidney Powell and whether she was ever able to back up these claims of election fraud. They wanted to know how the money from defending the republic went to um, basically fund these efforts to find any evidence of voter fraud which, or widespread fraud, which they did not. And then these voting system breaches in multiple states that were part of that hunt. You know, Sidney Powell, as you mentioned, these invoices do connect defending the republic directly to these breaches that we've seen investigated at a state level before, but not really from a federal level. So Jack Smith does seem to still be investigating that those two elements of this. It's really interesting reporting from you and Paula. This is a really focused on people outside of former President Trump's act, but how does it all connect to the former president? Yeah, Poppy, um, Jack Smith made clear in his indictment too, right, that Donald Trump sits atop what he'd outlined as a vast conspiracy to overturn the election. And Sidney Powell, as an unindicted co-conspirator in that case, mm-hmm. was part of the effort to ultimately overturn the election or try to overturn the election on Trump's behalf. So, you know, Sidney Powell does seem to still have potentially some legal jeopardy here. Prosecutors are still asking questions, but, you know, we, it remains to be seen whether or not she will ultimately face charges. It, it, it was worth noting, though, that in Georgia, the, the charges that she faces there are all tied to a voting system breach in Coffee County, Georgia, which is a rural Republican-heavy mm-hmm. county in South Georgia. So Coffee County has come up in some of these witness interviews um, that have been conducted by Jack Smith's team recently, as well as some breaches in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Yeah, Zach, that's actually something I want to follow up on. You, or our colleagues, including Sarah Murray, have broken a ton of news on the Coffee County element, specifically the breaches. What else have you learned? How does this all kind of tie together? Yeah, we're like three years past January 6th. We're still learning about, um, you know, how different people played significant roles in this effort to overturn the election. And, you know, I learned just recently that another witness came forward in April, sat down with the special counsel's office and said, look, his former boss, a, um, a wealthy GOP donor in Pennsylvania by the name of Bill Bockenberg, helped fund a multi-state effort to gain access to voting systems, not only in Pennsylvania, but in Arizona, in Michigan, and in Georgia. So, you know, people coming forward and really, um, you know, Bakkenberg was a fake elector, the top fake elector in Pennsylvania. So people have been coming forward and reporting things that they think the feds need to investigate. Jack Smith has been asking questions about the broader effort to gain access to voting systems and the funding behind it, but it remains to be seen how that might play into a federal investigation or potentially criminal charges down the line. Okay, Zachary Cohen, thanks again for the re- reporting. Well, new overnight, First Lady Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID and is experiencing mild symptoms. That's according to the First Lady's office. We're told President Biden has tested negative and is still planning on going to India just two days from now for a high stakes G20 summit with world leaders. Arlette Science is live for us at the North Lawn of the White House. And Arlette, I think there's the two elements here, the First Lady's health, but then also a very busy and consequential week for the president. Where do things stand? Well, Phil, and a busy week for First Lady Jill Biden. She was actually set to begin teaching at the community college here uh, near Washington, D.C. just this week. But now she will remain at their home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, after receiving that positive COVID test uh, on Monday evening. Now, they had, she had spent the weekend there uh, with her husband after they had traveled down to Florida uh, to survey the damage after Hurricane Adalia. And the White House says that after the First Lady received that positive diagnosis, the president went ahead and tested 
tested and he tested negative. Now, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says that the president will continue to, uh, to maintain a regular uh, testing cadence throughout the week and monitor for symptoms. But there are questions about what this will mean for the 80-year-old president and his incredibly hectic schedule. If you take a look at what he's planning for this week, uh, a bit later today, he is set to host a Medal of Honor ceremony here at the White House on Thursday. He departs for India, where he'll attend the G20 summit. And on Monday, he'll uh, all, uh, over the weekend, he will also uh, travel on to Vietnam. So the White House will be closely monitoring how the president is doing in the wake of his wife, First Lady Jill Biden, uh, receiving that positive COVID diagnosis. Now, this is uh, the second time the First Lady has uh, tested positive for COVID. Uh, her husband uh, had tested uh, positive last summer in July. She tested positive in August. Uh, both of them had undergone Paxlovid and then experienced a rebound case. Uh, we're still waiting to hear from the doctor whether they might go down that route and use the Paxlovid treatment uh, once again. But for the time being, she remains in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and the White House says the president will continue to test throughout the week as he has that busy uh, events on his schedule. All right, Arla signs for us the White House. Thank you very much. All right, coming up for us, U.S. officials say Kim Jong-un is planning to meet with Vladimir Putin in Russia. This is a big deal. They're going to talk about supplying weapons in the war against Ukraine. And the Senate is coming back to work today with several major issues looming over Capitol Hill, including a potential government shutdown and concerns over Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health. We're going to break down a huge month ahead. Stay with us. So really significant development on the world stage overnight. This morning, we're learning that North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un may meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin pretty soon uh, to advance ongoing arms negotiations. U.S. officials say the potential deal could see Pyongyang providing significant ammunition for different kinds of weapons to support Russia's war on Ukraine. The Kremlin has just declined to comment, but U.S. intelligence is indicating this, and the timing of any Putin-Kim Jong-un meeting is not confirmed. However, the New York Times this morning says it is expected to take place mid this month. Kylie Atwood joins us live at the State Department with more. If this happens, it's a huge deal, especially the fact that Kim Jong-un would travel out of country to go do this. Yeah, that's right. And that's why U.S. officials are actively telling North Korea to cease these conversations uh, with Russia at this time. We've heard that from U.S. officials quite frequently over the last week or so. Uh, but this is significant news that they think it's actually getting to a leader level engagement, a leader level potential decision with NSC spokesperson Adrian Watson uh, telling us that it is Kim Jong-un who is expecting to meet with President Putin, to engage with President Putin in Russia. Now, as you said, we don't know the exact timing of this actual potential engagement. The New York Times is saying that it could happen as soon as this month in the Far East in an area in Russia where actually Kim Jong-un has traveled in the past. He's traveled there by train. But the backdrop here is that North Korea has sold infantry weapons to uh, Russia throughout the course of this war uh, dating back to last year. And what the U.S. is looking for now is the potential for a new arms agreement between the two countries, with the NSC spokesperson, uh, top official John Kirby, saying last week that the expectation is that this would include a significant amount of ammunition from North Korea to Russia to be used in multiple different uh, types of weapon systems that Russia has, and also the possibility of raw materials for Russia's defense sector. We know that that's a key area as well, just because of how many sanctions are on Russia right now as a result 
result of their invasion of Ukraine. We have seen a flurry of activity between the two countries in recent months with the Russian defense minister visiting North Korea in July, a follow-up meeting by additional Russian officials to North Korea. And we also know, according to NSC, that Kim Jong-un and Putin have exchanged letters in recent months talking about deepening the relationship between the two countries. Poppy. So, so many of those steps leading up to what appears to be this meeting in just a matter of weeks. Kylie at the State Department, thanks very much. Phil. Let's bring in CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times White House and national security correspondent David Sanger. David, I want to start with White House officials have been warning uh, about the possibility of this, have been signaling this was a potential likelihood over the course of several months. Obviously, as Poppy and Kylie just laid out, the progression that we've seen on a bilateral basis between Russia and North Korea. Why now, though, in terms of actually moving forward uh, on these weapon sales and deliveries? Well, Phil, it's a really fascinating question, and I think the answer is that the Russians are uh, probably running low on ammunition, uh, just as Ukraine did. You'll remember that when the United States needed to find artillery shells for Ukraine, it got them from South Korea. And that's because the Korean peninsula has basically armed up with the kind of artillery on both sides that um, the Russians need, that the Ukrainians need. So I think from the Russian perspective, there's a little bit of you're going to go to the south, we'll go to the north. But there's something else that's going on here uh, as well. While uh, I think the Russians have a fair bit to gain, as Kylie uh, described, not only weapons but raw materials, the um, North Koreans have a huge amount to gain, Phil. And what do they, can they get from this? They can get oil, something that's hard to come by for North Korea. They can get help on their ICBMs, which have been impressively tested over the past uh, few months, including some that can probably reach the United States, obviously an area that uh, Russia knows a lot about. And finally, Phil, they get legitimacy. There's a superpower that actually needs them. David, you've uh, termed this the axis of the aggrieved, pointing to North Korea, Iran, Russia, and China. And that, I think, begs the question of, is this a one-time meeting to serve a one-time purpose, or is this the beginning of something that should be much more concerning to the West? Oh, I think it's concerning. This axis of the aggrieved is um, something that we've really seen come up as a reaction to the United States, NATO, the rest of the West, rallying behind uh, Ukraine. Uh, we've seen China, Russia, uh, Iran, and North Korea forge a new relationship. That BRICS meeting that took uh, place the other day was an effort by China to begin to have a counterweight to a U.S. and Western consensus-slave group. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing the world come together more in blocks than we really have at any time in the post Cold War period, Poppy. It's, it's really a, a remarkable reshaping, and it may be the biggest geopolitical result of the Ukraine war. Wow. David, one of my questions uh, when this reporting came out yesterday, when the White House uh, basically declassified intelligence and released this, is this follows what has been a, a fascinating uh, and very kind of on their front foot strategy the White House has pursued since before Russia invaded in terms of declassification and release of intelligence in advance, trying to kind of utilize that either to uh, postpone or, or hold off actions or to kind of galvanize uh, allies. 
What's the rationale here? I understand you declassify to try and keep China from making a move. I understand you declassify to either try and keep Russia from making a move or to try and convince your Western allies that they're about to. North Korea, I don't think, cares <laughs> if, if there's public perception of, of wrongdoing or, or going against what they had publicly said beforehand. Why, why this? You know, I think that the best you can say for it, Phil, is that it puts a spotlight on them that uh, makes it hard for uh, others around who deal with North Korea, Russia, China, uh, to continue trade with them and so forth. But let's face it, this has been a, a remarkable strategy, as you have said, that has only worked sporadically. They revealed Russia's war plans. Russia invaded anyway. They revealed that Iran was getting ready to ship uh, drones to uh, Russia. They've continued to ship uh, drones. It's really only with China, which has the most to lo lose mm -hmm. with their own trade relationships, that they've had some success in getting them to, to uh, restrain what it is that they're shipping. And that's why Putin is going to the North Koreans, because he can't get this stuff from the Chinese. Yeah, that's a great point. David Sanger, appreciate it as always, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, David. What officials in Pennsylvania are now trying to do to convince an escaped con convicted murderer to turn himself in. We'll explain what you're hearing after the break. It's a plea from his mother broadcast from a helicopter over the search area. We'll take you live near the prison where he escaped. And video shows the moment a crowded pier in Madison, Wisconsin, collapsed in a lake. You're watching it right now. Six people were hurt. Officials say 60 to 80 people from the University, University mm -hmm. of Wisconsin were crowded onto that pier when it gave way. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. So the state of Pennsylvania on edge right now because despite four credible sightings in the state, an escaped killer is still on the loose this morning. He escaped from a prison near Philadelphia on Thursday. Let's go to our colleague Danny Freeman. He joins us pretty near the, the prison 
four credible sightings and now a really creative effort to try to get him to surrender? That's right, Poppy. As you mentioned before the break, police are right now uh, using a broadcasted message from the suspect's mother in Portuguese. They're sending it from a helicopter, and that message is urging Danilo Cavalcante to surrender. Police still at this point hoping they can bring him in peacefully. Overnight, law enforcement officers fanned out in search of escaped convicted murderer Danilo Cavalcante. Blocking off roadways and scouring neighborhoods and thick woods within a two-mile radius of the prison he escaped from last Thursday near Pocopson Township in Pennsylvania. There is every reason to believe he remains in this area. As the search stretches into its sixth day, police broadcasting a message from the fugitive's mother across the search area. As desperate as he is, maybe he has a change of thought. And here's his mother telling him to surrender and his family cares about him. He's desperate. He's hungry. He's been in the woods. He's dirty. Perhaps this is what puts him over the edge where we can get a peaceful surrender. Cavalcante has been spotted four times since his escape, most recently on Sunday. It was uh, a trooper actually that observed him uh, in some distance, uh, gave chase but was unable uh, because of the terrain and some, some other obstacles there, was unable to get to him before he disappeared. Oh my God, this guy is down there. Ryan Drummond says the fugitive was in his home on Friday night. I woke up my wife, I said, hey, I think there might be somebody downstairs, um, you know, Get, get on the phone. Drummond says he saw Cavalcante leave, walking back into the woods after taking some food. Peaches, apples, uh, green snap peas were, had been missing. A couple hours later, a residential surveillance camera picked him up at 1.43 Saturday morning, wearing the same prison-issued clothes and carrying a backpack police think he may have stolen. He'll make mistakes. He'll show himself. He's already shown himself, we believe, a few times. We'll contain him and we will eventually catch him. Cavalcante was recently sentenced to life in prison without parole for the 2021 murder of his former girlfriend. He is desperate. He does not want to be caught. He has very little to lose at this point. And Poppy, I just want to emphasize the terrain around this prison really is quite diverse. There are a lot of wooded areas, there are creeks, there are even cornfields, and that is really what has made this search so challenging for police. Law enforcement officials say there are just a lot of places to hide. Poppy? I mean, to hear them say that one of the law enforcement officials, Danny, saw him on foot and just couldn't get to him because of the terrain just speaks to the difficulty because they're trained for this stuff. Please keep us posted. Thanks very much. Well, at any moment, a decision could come down on whether to move former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' election subversion case out of Fulton County and into federal court. We're going to discuss the likelihood of that happening. That's next. Stay with us. Recess is over on Capitol Hill and the Senate is back to work today. Hopefully your kids are back in school, by the way. There are a number of items on their shortlist to address, including avoiding a government shutdown in less than a month. Top of mind is Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health. The Republican senator has frozen twice in front of reporters this summer, raising questions about his age, his health and his ability to effectively lead. 
CNN Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona joins us now. It's been really fascinating to follow the Republican leadership response to this, Melanie, since it happened last to Mitch McConnell and the fact that he's going to talk to them, obviously, but already talked to a number of them on the phone about this over the recess. Right. There's a lot going on this month. Recess is over. Reality is starting to set in. Top of mind right now, of course, is the health surrounding GOP leader Mitch McConnell. And he is going to deliver his weekly uh, press conference tomorrow. He's going to deliver his floor remarks later today. So his performance, of course, is going to be heavily scrutinized. And then he's also going to be facing his own members for the first time. They have their weekly party lunches. There could also be a special conference meeting to specifically talk about his leadership and his health. And members still have a lot of questions about what is really going on and whether he is up to the job of leading them. So this is going to be just a critical moment for Mitch McConnell to really tamp down speculation about both his health and his political future. But politics aside, there's also a ton of legislative business. Congress is racing to avoid a shutdown at the end of this month, and they are nowhere near close to completing their work on their annual spending bill. So a short-term spending patch is going to be needed, but even that is proving to be complicated guys, because one of the chief sticking points right now is whether a supplemental funding package that includes both disaster aid and Ukraine money is going to be attached. So it's going to be a huge showdown between House conservatives and Senate Democrats and Republicans. You know, Mel, one of the other outstanding issues that Congress is going to have to figure out and one that the legislative history, I'm not going to take you down the rabbit hole as much as I know you and I would like to, but it's on a firefighter pay increase. There has been a push for it. There hasn't been a clear pathway forward in terms of pay raise for wildland firefighters. What's the latest on that? I know you have new reporting. Yeah, so this is one of the critical issues that is at stake in these funding fights. The bipartisan infrastructure law included a temporary pay raise for wildland firefighters of up to 50 percent, but that is set to expire at the end of this month. And so if Congress were to let that lapse, it would be potentially devastating. I mean, you could see mass resignations in the height of wildfire season. That is not something anybody wants to see. Now, I am told that Speaker Kevin McCarthy committed to extending this in a short-term funding bill, if, assuming they can actually get that passed. But it is less clear whether or not they're going to do a permanent long-term solution. Even though there's bipartisan support for this, and even though Kevin McCarthy himself is no stranger to just the effects of wildfires, California, of course, is home to many wildfires, this is an issue that has run into political headwinds because of conservative hardliners and their demands to cut back spending. So <clears throat> it's another issue to watch, a smaller issue, but an important one nonetheless, guys. Buckle up. What a month ahead. Melanie, yeah. thanks for the reporting. <laughs> well, this morning, we're also closely watching for a major ruling out of Georgia. At any moment, a federal district judge could rule on Mark Meadows' request to move his election subversion case out of Fulton County and into federal court. Both Meadows and D.A. Fonnie Willis gave the judge the additional briefs he asked for last week. Now we're just waiting to see how the judge rules. Before now, Meadows is set to be arraigned in court tomorrow, along with any of the other defendants who haven't waived their right to an arraignment. As we reported last week, Donald Trump has waived his and submitted a not guilty plea in writing. Let's bring in former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee and former federal prosecutor Timodayo Agongo-Williams, deputy chief of staff for former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Maura Gillespie, and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smeichel. Guys, thanks for joining us. Um, Timodayo, to start with you, remind people what's at stake here in this Meadows element of the Georgia case, specifically why we are waiting uh, to some degree with bated breath in terms of what will happen next. So there's a criminal statute that allows uh, an individual charged with state crimes if that person is a federal officer 
and is charged for a crime that was uh, conducted under color of law, meaning they, they basically did the thing they're charged with because they were a federal employee. They can go to a court and say, I want to remove that case to federal court for basically a neutral jury, a, a, a neutral forum. And you can think way back when, more old-time days, but folks are really concerned that states wouldn't be fair to the federal government. So Mark Meadows is saying, I want my case out of Georgia court. Doesn't make it a federal case. He's going to have the same prosecutors. Uh, he's going to have the same criminal exposure. But it does put it before a different jury that's going to be likely a little bit more conservative than a Fulton County jury. He's going to uh, be in the, you know, the federal court, which is not where Fannie Willis and her team are used to practicing. Why it's very important is that once it gets into federal court, one of the reasons why it would be federal court is because he has what's called a colorable uh, federal defense, which basically means there's some basis for him to have a defense in federal law against the state law charges. Mm -hmm. And that's super important because once he gets into federal court, the court has acknowledged that he has at least a potential federal uh, defense. Now, when he's there, he's going to assert that defense, which he already has. Uh, and if he's successful, that means those charges are fully dismissed. And that becomes even more important because former President Trump is watching. Uh, uh, the other federal employees like Jeffrey Clark, who are also charged with crimes in Georgia, are going to be keeping an eye on that. And if that's successful, Fawny Willis could have a whole swath of her cases removed and then dismissed in federal court. But it is a close call. I mean, the judge has asked for supplemental briefing, which for lawyers... If a judge asks for you to brief an issue even more, that means the judge thinks it's not clear. He, he's basically saying, I need your help. Go and dig deeper into case law. Find me support so I know which way to go. So I think everyone right now pretty has uh, what is effectively a coin toss here to see whether this case is going to move or it's going to just stay in the state court and proceed the as expected. big picture here for the former president is that if Meadows is successful— this could mean that Trump would be successful moving there and potentially getting it dismissed, too. I mean, this could put Fonnie Willis's whole probe in peril, no? It, put, it potentially could. I think the difference, though, that uh, the former president has for Mark Meadows is that he has far more charges, right? So it's not—you're going to be looking at each act and each charge to see whether it falls under the gambit of the statute. So I think the former president is in a different situation here because his charges are far more expansive and include a lot of conduct. If you remember— Mark Meadows has said, I just made a phone call here, and that's my job. I set up a meeting. I was just being chief of staff. But I think it's going to be tougher for the former president to look at all this conduct he's charged with and say, I was faithfully executing the laws of the United States. Because as many folks will know, the federal government doesn't have a role in conducting Georgia state elections. Right. right? The so, state has that role. The state has that role. So I think he's going to have a tough, he being former President Trump, saying that I wasn't acting as candidate Trump, mm -hmm. but as President, President Trump when I called the Secretary of State and said, find me 11,000 whatever votes. He wasn't calling and saying, follow federal law. I'm calling as the head of, of the, the executive branch. He was really calling as candidate Trump to say, I want you all to do X, Y, Z. So I, I think uh, President Trump has a far, far uh, more uphill battle here, uh, which is, I think, incredibly unlikely to be successful. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch. Well, I want to ask you, uh, our colleagues had uh, broke some news, actually cracked the window open a little bit on what Jack Smith, the special counsel, is still looking into, despite the indictment of former President Trump on uh, January 6th related election subversion cases. Following the money, uh, Sidney Powell, the lawyer uh, and the kind of outside group that was aligned with her, 
the January 6th committee, uh, where you worked, uh, and Tim and I worked as well, did a lot of work on this front as well. Where do you think this heads from a federal perspective? There's a lot they can uncover here that the January 6th committee also did, and we presented, you know, laid out in those hearings through the summer. Uh, so they'll probably follow those through that process. Uh, I would also do you just, think you guys gave a roadmap I, oh, absolutely. on this specific issue? I think we did. I mean, and, you know, we can discuss that, too. I, mean, I, I think they did. I think one thing I point out about some of the things that were uncovered in the hearings is that there was some things, and we've talked about this before with Mark Meadows, that weren't necessarily handed over to us. So I'm, I'll be interested to see what Jack Smith can uncover uh, as we kind of <clears throat> see how this plays out. But there were certainly a lot of things that we were able to present to the American people, and I think in a sequential manner. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see what Jack Smith turns out. No, I, I, as I'm listening to both of you and thinking about all the work that was done, what an incredible narrative that was laid out for the American people, mm -hmm. right? And so when, when I think about what might happen to Mark Meadows and then what Trump is looking at, as you've said, the concern that I have is will the American people, particularly the voters in Florida, feel as if accountability has been, uh, that there's accountability here? Do they, would they feel that he going to federal court, whether it's Meadows and or Trump, mm -hmm. if they feel that here again, the ringleaders of all that we witnessed on January 6th are not being held accountable. And by, and by the way, the folks who say, well, I did what I was told are the ones that are going to uh, be punished and effectively uh, uh, let the, the ringleaders, if you will, off the hook. I do get concerned about that because what that does is it sort of tamps down enthusiasm for all the work that you did, but also for the votes that any potential Democrat can get uh, going into 2024. And yet, Basil, despite all of this, um, Biden, you're the Democrat here at the table, Biden is tied with Trump yeah. in the new Wall Street Journal polling. And Biden's really not doing well on the economy. 58% um, of folks say it's gotten worse under him. And age, 73% of voters say he's too old to seek a second term. Only 47% of voters think the same of Trump. How do you fight those two things? A couple of things. If, first of all, I understand to some extent, if even if the numbers are better, people don't feel as though it's better. And if you're a millennial, you have high mortgage costs, you feel that the American your dream is, is probably, your rent too is, damn high, high, is, is too damn high. I understand, I honestly understand the concern, but think about what the Biden-Harris team was elected to do. It was elected to run the bureaucracy, met, engage in good governance, and bring the country back to normalcy. They've actually done that. Can I just ask you, though, if sure. perception is reality, uh -huh. perception is everything. So if you were running the show, you're a Democratic strategist, what would you change so that people feel what's actually happening, so that those young Democratic voters feel it and vote that way? Well, he's done a couple of those things, meaning he's talked about student loan forgiveness, right? The, the young voters really are attracted to that policy issue. They continue to talk about climate change. And by the way, continue to talk about the economy itself. As we've looked over the last few cycles, the number of swing states and swing state voters has actually decreased. We don't talk about Ohio and Florida, for example, as swing states anymore. So if we're talking about a smaller number of states and voters who are either disaffected Republicans or independent voters, that economic message is really going to hit home. On the other stuff, particularly what was created after the, uh, during the January 6th hearings, I think was really built in with Democrats and Republicans. They're, they're, they are where they are, and likely unmovable. But the persuadable, I think, does get persuaded by an economic message. All right, guys. Uh, Basil, Mora, Timidayo, thank you guys very much. You two are coming back with us, whether you like it or not. We appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks, guys.
It is an all-American quarterfinal matchup. Two of the three remaining American men will face off in the U.S. Open, a preview next. And look at this big guy. Yikes. A group of Mississippi hunters have broken the state record for the longest alligator ever captured. Why you want that record? I have no idea. It's more than 14 feet long and weighs just over 800 pounds. Congratulations to those guys. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, the men's semifinals at the U.S. Open are guaranteed to include at least one American. Two of the three remaining will face off tonight. Coy Wire joins us now with a preview. Coy, are U.S. men's tennis back after the women have carried the entire weight for the last decade? That's right. They're catching up. They're catching up. Good morning, Phil and Poppy. It's been two decades since an American man last won in front of a home crowd at the U.S. Open. That was Andy Roddick in 2003. But we have a chance. For the first time at any major since 1968, we'll see two black American men in the quarters, 10-seeded Francis Tiafo and unseeded Ben Shelton. They're going to play each other tonight. Tiafo's in the quarters for a second straight year. He's only dropped one set in four matches so far, but he's never faced Shelton as a pro or his powerful serve. Just 20 years old, he fired off a pair of 149-mile-per-hour serves in his match on Sunday, the fastest of the entire tournament. Look out. The third American is ninth-seeded Taylor Fritz, who will play 23-time major champ Novak Djokovic for a chance to advance to the semis. This is the first time since 2005 that three American men have advanced this far in singles at the Open. It was a late-night Labor Day thriller for reigning Olympic champ Alex Zverev and world number six Yannick Sinner last night. Four hours, 41 minutes long. Sinner got cramps. He had to get up off of his feet, but he would rally to force a fifth set. And his Italian fans, the Corona boys who follow him around, they were jumping around to give him life. Apparently, Sinner snacks on carrots during matches. But at 1.40 in the morning Eastern time, Zverev finally triumphed, calling it the longest match ever, but that he's back, and this is what he lives for. An absolute battle. Yannick's face in his hands as he walked off the court, but Zverev and the crowd applauded him. He'll face world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, in the quarters. And Duke went into last night's a college football game as 12-point underdogs at home against number nine, Clemson. But somebody must have forgotten to tell the Blue Devils because they were lights out, especially Duke quarterback Riley Leonard, whose mom texts him before every game, I quote, you suck, as motivation. He wears it on his wristband. Well, mom's mind games work. Her little boy making the biggest play of the game in the third quarter. He breaks loose from a would-be tackler, and there he goes down the sideline. Looking like Phil Mattingly and some football pads. Touchdown for the lead on defense in the second half. Duke served up a big old goose egg. Two goal line stands, three turnovers, including Dorian Mousey's interception. Outscoring Clemson 22-0 in the second half. Duke wins 28-7. Look at the fans rushing the field. That is what it's all about. But Phil, Poppy, how about Mr. Riley Leonard's mom and that motivational uh, mind technique she has? Moms, man. 
Moms know. <laughs> like it, it may not make sense to us, but if the mom is doing it, it's working. Clearly, it's working. Coy, I appreciate you as the professional football player thinking I, as, <laughs> who topped out as a high school football player, could do anything like that. That's <laughs> Coy Wire. Thanks, my friend. You got it. Elon Musk threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League. Why he's blaming them for his platform's slump in ad sales. This morning, Elon Musk threatening a new lawsuit, this one against the Anti-Defamation League over their reporting on his platform X, formerly known as Twitter. In a post yesterday, Musk claimed the ADL was driving advertisers away, saying since the acquisition that the ADL has been trying to, quote, kill this platform by falsely accusing it and me, Musk writes, of being anti-Semitic. He added, quote, to clear our platform's name on the matter of anti-Semitism, it looks like we have no choice but to file a defamation lawsuit against the ADL. Oh, the irony. In May, we should note the ADL published a report finding anti-Semitic content on Musk's platform after he reinstated several accounts with a history of posting hate. Now, a spokesperson for the ADL told Axios they don't comment on pending legal matters, but after the hashtag, quote, ban the ADL started trending on X over the weekend, they released a statement saying, quote, ADL is unsurprised yet undeterred that anti-Semites, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, and other trolls have launched a coordinated attack on our organization. This type of thing is nothing new. Such insidious efforts don't daunt us. Instead, they drive us to be unflinching in our commitment to fight hate in all of its forms and ensure the safety of Jewish communities and other marginalized groups. Well, joining us now, CNN senior media analyst and senior media reporter for Axios, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, I think, you know, there was a follow-up tweet from Elon Musk where he says, to be clear, I'm not anti-Semitic, but he's also pro-free speech. And I think that line in between there, that gray area, gets at the heart of this issue right now. Uh, What are the ramifications, given the way this has continued to evolve? Yeah, Phil, well, for Elon Musk, this has big ramifications, and that's because Twitter is still very heavily reliant on advertising from big brands, Fortune 500 companies. Those are the types of companies that reputationally cannot afford to take the risk if a third-party group like the Anti-Defamation League is saying that aligning their ads against content on this platform could be potentially anti-Semitic. If you take a look at other big platforms, Meta or YouTube, they also have faced threats from the Anti-Defamation League and other civil groups around hate speech and policing it. But the difference, Phil, is those platforms are so heavily reliant on ads from small and medium-sized businesses that aren't going to be called out. And so they haven't had big impacts on their businesses when there were boycotts and threats. For Elon Musk and Twitter, this is a serious business problem. The vast majority of Twitter's revenue comes from those big brands that can't afford to ignore messages like this from the ADL. What's interesting is that Musk also tweeted, Sarah, that their revenue, uh, ad revenues down 60 percent, and he directly tied that to this ADL report. But the new CEO of X, Linda Yaccarino, in that interview with CNBC about a month ago, basically said they're doing great. Uh, She also said they're pretty close to break even. Which is it? Well, they're a privately owned company, so they don't have to publicly disclose anymore, Poppy. But if you were to take a look at what financial analysts are saying, for the past few months, Fidelity actually marked up the value of Twitter. Granted, it's way down from when Elon Musk bought it mm-hmm. for $44 billion, but they were doing okay. However, I think a series of unforced efforts, for example, calling out the ADL, is going to make it hard for analysts to continue to project that Twitter is moving in a positive direction, especially when Elon Musk is saying that ad revenue is down 60%. That's just astronomical. 
Sir, I want to switch topics for a second because you've got new reporting. I think it's one that Democrats outside the Biden campaign operation, the reelection effort, uh, will be pleased to hear to some degree because they've been wondering, when is this the kind of heavy blitz of spending? When are they going to start uh, going on air in a major significant way? What are they doing here? Yes, yeah, so the Biden campaign is going to run a brand new ad this Thursday during NFL season opener between the Detroit Lions and the Kansas City Chiefs. And a campaign source tells me that this ad, which is going to be heavily focused on the economy, is going to be bolstered by about seven figures worth of spend over the next few months. Now, this is part of a broader $25 million campaign from the Biden administration, mostly touting his economic achievements. But it's notable, Phil, because at this time, the Republican Party is sort of battling it out with each other. You'll notice that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, most of their spend is targeting Donald Trump, not the Biden administration or the state of the economy. Of course, Donald Trump's spend is mostly targeting his indictments. And so the Biden campaign is going to sort of blitz the airways, taking advantage of this unique opportunity while its competitors in the GOP are fighting with each other. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. calling in backup. The Russian president may soon meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un to make a plea for more weapons. The U.S. is urging North Korea to cease any arms negotiations with Russia. We can't even get China to help because China understands how badly it would hurt them. Despite four credible sightings, a violent murderer remains on the loose. Investigators say they're closing in on him. Hoping this plea by his mother will compel him to come forward. He's going to do anything humanly possible to get away. I intend to stress him. I want to push him hard. He'll make mistakes. Exclusive to CNN, special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election, not over yet. Now he's got his sights set on a connection between fundraising and the push to breach voter equipment. Mathematical evidence of Trump votes being trashed and uh, Biden votes being injected. Abuse of power, bribery, retaliation. Some of the allegations facing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, whose historic impeachment trial begins. Impeachment managers insist that they will call him to testify. To say this case is not about politics. Nonsense. It's definitionally political. Tennessee is the latest state to enact a third grade retention law amid growing concerns about learning loss from the pandemic. They should be going to fourth grade because they're ready to go to fourth grade. I don't want him to be behind on reading, which will influence everything for the rest of his life. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. As you can see, there's a lot of news. But here's where we begin this morning. The Kremlin is refusing to comment on Kim Jong-un's alleged plans to visit Russia and meet with Vladimir Putin. U.S. officials are sounding the alarm. They say the North Korean dictator wants to meet face to face with Putin to discuss a secret arms deal to supply weapons and ammunition for the war on Ukraine. The New York Times reports the meeting is expected to happen this month, possibly just days from now. CNN national security correspondent Kylie Atwood is live at the State Department. And Kylie, uh, the White House says this is about advancing an arms deal. Talks have been going on for several months here. Walk people through what this actually means, big picture. 
Yeah, so the significance here is that there could be new capabilities, uh, new uh, military capabilities going to Russia to be used on the battlefield in Ukraine. This is, of course, as Russia has been, you know, running out of some of its ammunition and the like. That is exactly what U.S. officials say could potentially be involved in this new arms uh, agreement between North Korea and Russia. We're hearing, according to Adrian Watson, the NSC spokesperson, that it's Kim Jong-un who expects that he's going to meet with President Putin to have some sort of engagement with President Putin in Russia. And of course, the U.S. isn't saying exactly when that could happen. But as you said, The New York Times is reporting it could happen as soon as this month at an economic forum in Vladivostok. Now, we should note that Kim Jong-un has traveled uh, to that city by train in the past, but it would be hugely significant if he makes that visit again this month. And the backdrop here is that there has been a flurry of engagement between North Korea and Russia with the defense uh, minister from Russia traveling to North Korea in July. According to NSC, that was an effort to try and convince North Korea to go ahead with selling weaponry to Russia. And of course, we saw, according to the NSC, additional officials from Russia traveling to North Korea. Letters have been exchanged recently between Kim Jong-un and President Putin talking about deepening their bilateral cooperation between the two countries. So it appears that all things are advancing, with the NSC saying that these are actively advancing efforts to try and pursue pursue, excuse me, this new arms control agreement. We don't know exactly what would be in it, Phil, but uh, U.S. officials are saying the expectation is that it would include a significant amount of ammunition uh, to Russia for multiple of their weapon systems and also the possibility of raw materials for Russia's defense sector. We know that that is key uh, because the number of sanctions on Russia right now are just huge. And so their defense sector has really been struggling as they have engaged in the Ukraine war. Phil. Yeah, big developments. Kylie Atwood for us on Foggy Bottom. Thanks so much. Joining us now, former Defense Secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, thanks very much for the time. Just a reaction to Kylie's reporting and how much this, if it happens and it plays out the way that U.S. intelligence is indicating that it might, how much could North Korea actually help the Russian military? Well, look, they, they could help the Russian military in the sense that Russia is struggling to produce uh, for the battlefield, 155 millimeter ammunition, rockets, anti-tank weapons, etc., to sustain the fight against uh, Ukraine. And that's important because we know, of course, Ukraine is on the counteroffensive right now. They seem to have been making some uh, bigger progress here the last few days, last week or so. So it could aid them in that regard. Now, look, this isn't the first time we've heard about North Korea supporting Russian troops, or at least Wagner. It's been going on for a year. And at each point, I think the administration has done a good job in terms of calling it out. But I'm concerned uh, from a different regard, and that could be uh, that Kim Jong-un is going to uh, Russia possibly as soon as next week to ask for something more, something that could affect the balance of power uh, on the Korean Peninsula and something that could possibly affect the United States' interests. Well, let's get into that a bit more because there's obviously been a focus on, you know, getting Russian oil, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about how to make their weapons more effective. Is that right? Yeah, from a strategic perspective, I'm concerned that uh, a couple things that uh, Kim Jong-un may be asking for would be nuclear submarine technology and uh, satellite technology, uh, both of which could affect their ability to strike the United States through right. uh, submarine ballistic launch missiles or ICBMs. The, the White House statement uh, is 
pretty much what you would expect, saying we urge the DPRK to cease its arms negotiations with Russia, abide by public commitments that Pyongyang has made not to provide or sell arms to Russia. You've already have a lot of sanctions on North Korea. If you were in the Biden White House, what would your advice be to them at this point? Is there more right now that the Biden White House can do in terms of deterrence? Well, look, North Korea is going to ignore those warnings, of course. As you mentioned, they're heavily sanctioned now, as is Russia. This uh, transaction, transactions are important to Kim Jong-un. It, it props him up internationally in terms of showing the importance of him and his regime. Mm -hmm. That's why they had Defense Minister Shoigu there uh, uh, in, in July. July. And of course, yeah, we also know that uh, the, the, the Russians and Chinese have invited North Korea to join a trilateral naval exercise coming mm -hmm. up. So this boosts uh, Kim Jong-un's reputation. Look, I, I think what the administration has to do is, is crack down further uh, on the on the Russian side of this and then try to interdict, uh, if possible, uh, any North Korean cargoes trying to make their way into the region. What also makes this even more fascinating in terms of timing is the meeting yesterday between Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Erdogan. I mean, there had been increasing signs that the West maybe had a little bit less to worry about uh, regarding a cozy relationship between Turkey and Russia. But that meeting yesterday indicates not so. Right. Well, you have that, but you also have reports now that the United States, United Kingdom and the EU are going to the UAE to try and uh, curtail the UAE support of Russia. So you see these things breaking out uh, where the where the allies, if you will, are trying to tamp down on any type of support for Russia. And you mentioned the case of Erdogan yeah. uh, supporting Russia, trying to lift the grain embargo, doing things like that. Keep in mind that uh, while Erdogan has approved uh, Sweden's uh, admission to NATO, we have yet to have the Turkish Parliament Act to do so. That'll take another month or so. Mm -hmm. So that's still on hold in many ways as well. I'd love your take on what Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said yesterday and really what he didn't say when asked multiple times by reporters in New Hampshire if he thought Vladimir Putin uh, is a war criminal. Listen to this exchange. Yes or no? I think that Putin is a dictator, and I think that there are open questions that need to be adjudicated by the ICCJ. We have an ICCJ for a reason. My job as the U.S. president is to advance American interests. So I think Putin's actions have been craven. Not much I will say, and I've said it all along. We have to get the facts before we get to the bottom of that. The ICCJ is referring to the International Criminal Court, but he's, he's punting. What's your response? Well, clearly, uh, Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. I mean, he's he's bombed civilian cities, killed civilians. Uh, his troops have raped and pillaged. They've kidnapped Ukrainian children. He's they've committed more, more war crimes than, than one can count. But look, I, I think Ramaswamy has uh, drawn criticism from from most quarters, rightfully so, for his many of his foreign policy stan stances that are just in, in some ways, certainly out of the norm and outlandish in others. And I think we would actually harm our national security if implemented. But uh, look, he has a right to his views, and he's going to probably continue to advance him on in the Republican GOP nomination. We'll see how that plays over time. Many of the many observers have said a lot of his views on foreign policy actually echo and remind them of Trump. Do they remind you of Trump? Yes, in many ways. I mean, it's it's a more isolationist approach. Uh, you know, when he's he's talked about uh, somehow meeting with Putin and, and cutting a deal so that Putin can have a chunk of of Ukraine, that's just r ridiculous. Or, or saying that by 2028, once we move a semiconductor industry here to the United States, 
China can have its can have Taiwan. I mean, those views just undermine American leadership. They undermine U.S. values abroad. They certainly don't uh, uh, make a major break with uh, people like me who consider themselves Reagan Republicans. That's not how Ronald Reagan would see the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and and there are other things again that he said, but I, yeah. that I think are really outside the bounds of. Uh, of, of what America's role in yeah. the world is and should be. Interesting, given that he compares himself to Reagan um, quite often. Before you go, I just want your assessment of the new op-ed this morning in the Wall Street Journal by the secretaries of the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, just again saying uh, that this holdup that Secretary Tommy, uh, excuse me, Senator Tommy Tuberville has continued to hold up these appointments and these confirmations of senior military officials getting through is, in their words, putting national security at, at risk. Are you on the same page as all of them? Well, look, I argued uh, months ago with uh, previous secretaries of defense that it does mm -hmm. affect military readiness and over time could affect national security. It's important that they make this statement, but I, I think it becomes to Republican senators to put the pressure on Tuberville to release his hold. Uh, Democrats have done it in the past as well, but this has gone on too long. But look, on the other hand, I think I've said publicly Chuck Schumer should start moving nominations through the system, particularly the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There's three of them right now coming up on four, he should start moving those and start moving these these nominees through. Take one a week, get it done. It doesn't undermine the rightfulness of, of the broader position, but start moving them. Don't leave our, our, our military at risk like this and stop using the generals, the admirals as pawns in this political game. It's not good for DOD. It's not good for our uniform leadership. And Secretary Esper, you signed that letter back in May uh, asking for this. It's mm -hmm. been months and months now. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Well, ahead this morning, Donald Trump is already indicted, but special counsel Jack Smith, he's still digging. We have exclusive reporting about what he's looking into now. We just learned this morning, next hour, officials in Pennsylvania will hold a news conference on that escaped inmate who's been on the lam since Thursday. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. This morning, First Lady Jill Biden is battling a mild case of COVID. The White House says she tested positive Monday. She will remain at home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. President Biden did test negative. No changes have been made to his plans for this week, including a Medal of Honor ceremony that's today, and then a trip to India for the G20 summit later this week. Arlette Sines joins us live at the White House with more. She's doing okay? Yeah, she is, Poppy. The White House says the First Lady is simply experiencing mild symptoms and will remain at their home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, after testing positive for COVID-19 on Monday night. Now, the president, after the First Lady's test, he tested, and the White House says he tested negative. But he will continue to go through a regular testing cadence throughout the week, as well as monitor for symptoms. Now, this comes after the couple had spent the weekend together. On Saturday, they had traveled down to Florida to survey the damage after Hurricane Adalia before traveling on to their beach home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And it comes as the 80-year-old president has quite a packed week ahead. Just yesterday, he was in Philadelphia for a Labor Day parade. Today, here at the White House, he will host a Medal of Honor ceremony. And on Thursday, he is set to travel to India for the G20 summit and then travel on to Vietnam. So questions uh, do remain about the, whether this could have any impact on his schedule going forward. But the White House will be monitoring the president's uh, symptoms and have 
having him test regularly heading into that trip. Now, this is also a busy week for the First Lady. She was actually set to start uh, teaching today at Northern Virginia Community College, but the COVID-19 test has now upended those plans. The First Lady's office tells me that she is working with the school to try to find a substitute teacher for these first days of classes. She teaches typically teaches on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So uh, the First Lady for the time being will remain in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware after that positive diagnosis, and the president will continue to test during the week. Some disappointed students, I'm sure, but we're glad mm -hmm. she's doing okay, Arlette. Thank you. Phil. Well, today, after 40 days away, the U.S. Senate will officially gavel back into session. They'll be back on Capitol Hill following their August break, and they've got a whole host of issues to tackle in the coming days. In fact, to some degree, I hope staff rested during those 40 days because it is about to get real really quickly. The biggest pressing deadline that we want to walk you through right now, you see the clouds over the Capitol building, probably sunny today, not so much over the course of the next four weeks. The primary deadline a potential government shutdown. At the end of September, lawmakers have now less than four weeks to reach an agreement. And where do things stand at this point in time? Here's probably a good way to look at it. House Republicans versus everybody else. Now, there is a recognition on all sides, including with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, that they will not have a full year spending agreement uh, that is going to be complete in the next 26, 27 days. So they all agree that there has to be some type of short-term stopgap bill. Here's the problem. McCarthy and his conference aren't there yet. When it comes to spending, they want hundreds of billions of dollars less than what House Democrats want. Right now, there's no clear pathway forward, even though they all know what the actual solution is going to be. A short-term stopgap agreement. Know the solution, how to get there, an open question. Also, a wrinkle. Disaster aid and Ukraine aid, an emergency supplemental request, now more than $40 billion. Obviously, disasters in Hawaii, Hurricane Idalia last week, Vermont floods, Ukraine funding. That is an issue as well. There is a solution here that lawmakers all seem to agree with, at least behind the scenes, attach it to that stopgap agreement. The pathway forward, well, this is where you get into the very real roadblocks that underscore the House Republicans versus everybody dynamic right now. Top-line spending numbers, huge disagreements. Senate appropriators, they've actually already passed on a bipartisan basis all 12 spending bills. House appropriators, very different place. The timing of the stopgap bill, McCarthy suggesting sometime perhaps in November. Uh, right now, others saying December. Border security, House Republicans want border security on any package. Ukraine aid, a lot of Republicans don't want any Ukraine aid. Conservative opposition to disaster aid, that is longstanding and continues today. The impeachment process has become a major issue as well, and the Trump indictments. A lot of Republicans trying to use the spending bills to try and take away funding from the prosecutors targeting Trump. Now, that's not just all of it. There's more to do by the end of the month. Government funding and FAA reauthorization is still on the table. They will likely extend that. There's also critical military conf confirmations. You heard Poppy talking with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper about this guy, Tommy Tuberville. His hold, we talked about it a lot heading into the summer recess, it's still there. And what does that mean? It means there is no current confirmed Army Chief of Staff, Marine Corps Commandant, Chief of Naval Operations, General Mike Mil Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's still technically in his position. That will end soon. His nominee has already moved through uh, the Senate committee process, waiting for confirmation. Right now, though, that hold still stands. Will it clear? It's an open question, along with, I don't know, just about everything else over the course of the next month. Poppy? We have new exclusive CNN reporting that shows the widening scope of the federal investigation into attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Former President Trump was charged a month ago with four criminal counts for orchestrating a broad conspiracy to hold on to power. Special counsel Jack Smith still digging. That's according to new reporting from multiple sources familiar with the investigation. 
This also raises the possibility that others could still face legal peril. Jack Smith is following the money. Sources tell CNN his team of prosecutors have asked two recent witnesses about how money that was raised off baseless claims of voter fraud was used to fund attempts to breach voting equipment in several key states that Biden won. Prosecutors have focused those questions on former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, who made herself known for these unsubstantiated claims. Listen. We have mathematical evidence in a number of states of massive quantities of Trump votes being trashed, just simply put in the trash like you would on your computer with any file, and uh, Biden votes being injected. Now, you'll remember Powell was indicted in the Georgia election subversion case, but she remains an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case. Now, CNN obtained invoices that show Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, hired forensic firms that accessed voting equipment in four swing states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. In Georgia, that access looked like this. The Coffee County GOP chair standing by as others inspect the county elections office the day after the attack on the Capitol. Here to discuss, CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray, CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Uh, Sarah, I, I want to start with you because you've been so deep in the weeds covering all of the different elements of just about all of the different legal cases here. What stands out to you uh, as you look through this reporting, as you've been calling your sources about what this means? Well, I think two things stand out. One, I mean, we knew that some of these voting breaches were being looked at on a local level. Obviously, we knew they were being looked at in Georgia, where a number of these folks faced charges for the Coffee County breach. But it's notable that the special counsel is looking into them. It's also notable that this investigation is continuing. When we saw this indictment against former President Donald Trump, we saw all of these unindicted co-conspirators along with him. And we've been wondering since then, are these people who are going to face charges at some point? And I think that this latest reporting, from uh, Zach Cohen and Paula Reed still holds out that possibility. It's very clear the special counsel's investigation is not over, is continuing, and that there could be others who are facing potential legal peril. Let's turn, uh, Ellie, to what's going on with the judge in the Mark Meadows case and this attempt to move to federal court. He could make the decision today. This judge has asked for both sides to brief him further on the issue. What's at stake here in this decision, whichever way it goes? Yeah, so I think this is going to be a very close call, and I think it'll come down very soon. The judge did ask for extra briefing last week. The question as to whether Mark Meadows gets from state court, where he's charged in the yep. Fulton County case, over to federal court, where he wants to be, is was he acting within the scope of his role as White House chief of staff? The judge said, well, what if some of it was in that role and some of it was outside the role, and the parties obviously disagree on that? If this case goes over to federal court, first of all, big win for Mark Meadows. He will potentially have a more favorable jury pool. He might have a more favorable appellate court waiting for him in the federal system. And he's going to ask for dismissal if he gets to the federal court. The other big question, and we don't know the answer to this, if Meadows, one of the 18 or 19 defendants, gets over into federal court, do all other 18 automatically go with him, including Donald Trump. Now, we don't know the answer. It's never come up. I think the better answer is no. Each defendant has to stand on their own. But this is another one of those unresolved issues that's going to be crucial. Mm-hmm. Sarah, I think it might be easy for people to forget. In fact, if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't notice it at all. Uh, Peter Navarro is actually facing a trial at this point. <laughs> There's a jury selection as well. Uh, former top Trump White House official. What's going on there? 
I think Peter Navarro would be devastated, first of all, to hear that you've forgotten about his bill. <laughs> yes, he uh, he is going to trial now for defying a subpoena for the January 6th Select Committee. It's taken him a while to get to this point, in part because the judge decided to give his team a little bit more deference to sort of play out this argument of whether he should not have had to comply with the subpoena because there was some presidential privilege that Donald Trump invoked that was preventing him from handing over documents, from testifying. And ultimately, again, the judge gave them a while to play this out, to argue this. The judge found this argument was, quote, pretty weak sauce. And so now Peter Navarro is essentially going to trial where the jury has to decide, did he intentionally and willfully defy this subpoena? So it's going to be a much lower bar for the jury to meet. And, uh, you know, a number of the defenses that Peter Navarro may have had have already essentially been neutered by this judge. It makes people, Ellie, think back to uh, Steve Bannon, for example. But you also make the really important point, big picture, that this is a reminder of the invaluable work that the January 6th committee did. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these are the two prosecutions that came out of people defying the January 6th committee subpoena. Steve Bannon was convicted last year, sentenced to four months. He's on appeal now. Peter Navarro is in a very similar situation where Steve Bannon was before his trial, which was there's kind of no defense at this point. He ha- he was going to make this executive privilege defense, but the judge barred it. He said, no, there's no evidence of it. This is going to be just a defiance and appeal trial. uh, Peter Navarro is going to basically just hope somebody on the jury nullifies, meaning says, I don't care about the law and the facts. I'm letting them go. That happens sometimes. But he's really going to be playing for appeal here. And yeah, look, let's remember, DOJ was sort of stuck in in, in its tracks here on this overall investigation until last summer, 2022, when the January 6th committee really brought this all to attention. And I think that changed the whole political tenor around this. That's a great point, Ellie. Thank you, Sarah. Great reporting. Thanks. Thanks. We have new developments on the manhunt for the convicted murderer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison. Two school districts in the search area now closed after authorities told administrators, quote, the search situation has evolved. We'll have more when we come back. Welcome back. We are just now learning that two Pennsylvania school districts in the area where authorities are searching for an escaped inmate announced it would be closed today after authorities told administrators, quote, the search situation has evolved. One hour from now, authorities will hold a news conference on the search for Danilo Cavalcante, who has been on the run since last Thursday. He was serving life without parole for killing his ex-girlfriend, stabbing her 38 times in front of her two young children. Officials say he is, quote, an extremely dangerous man. CNN's Danny Freeman joins us now. Uh, Danny, we talked last hour. This seems to be a new development here. What's your sense of things on the ground? Yeah, Phil, I think that you really highlighted the main thing there that this these school districts were closed and were specifically mentioning the search area and the search situation evolving. I'll get to that in a little bit, but I just want to first explain to you and to viewers perhaps why this search may and has been so difficult over the past few days. If you take a look around the prison area, there really is a tremendous amount of wooded area. There are a lot of creeks. There are even cornfields for uh, several parts of this area. Law enforcement officials say it's very, very easy to hide in this area. Overnight, law enforcement officers fanned out in search of escaped convicted murderer Danello Cavalcante. Blocking off roadways and scouring neighborhoods and thick woods within a two-mile radius of the prison he escaped from last Thursday near Pocopson Township in Pennsylvania. There is every reason to believe he remains in this area. As the search stretches into its sixth day, 
police broadcasting a message from the fugitive's mother across the search area. As desperate as he is, maybe he has a change of thought and here's his mother telling him to surrender and his family cares about him. He's desperate, he's hungry, he's been in the woods, he's dirty. Perhaps this is what puts him over the edge where we can get a peaceful surrender. Cavalcante has been spotted four times since his escape, most recently on Sunday. It was uh, a trooper actually that observed him uh, in some distance, uh, gave chase but was unable uh, because of the terrain and some, some other obstacles there, was unable to get to him before he disappeared. Oh my God, this guy is down there. Ryan Drummond says the fugitive was in his home on Friday night. I woke up my wife, I said, hey, I think there might be somebody downstairs, um, you know, Get, get on the phone. Drummond says he saw Cavalcante leave, walking back into the woods after taking some food. Peaches, apples, uh, green snap peas were, had been missing. A couple hours later, a residential surveillance camera picked him up at 1.43 Saturday morning, wearing the same prison-issued clothes and carrying a backpack police think he may have stolen. He'll make mistakes. He'll show himself. He's already shown himself, we believe, a few times. We'll contain him and we will eventually catch him. Cavalcante was recently sentenced to life in prison without parole for the 2021 murder of his former girlfriend. He is desperate. He does not want to be caught. He has very little to lose at this point. So, Phil, to get back to that breaking news that you said at the beginning of the piece, initially law enforcement officials were saying that they were focusing really on a two-mile radius uh, in the area around and a little bit south of the prison. Well, now, as you said, two school districts saying that they're canceling classes and also closing their offices at an abundance of caution. The Kennett Consolidated School District specifically citing that the search situation has evolved. And then in a second school district, the Unionville Chads Ford School District saying the status of the situation with the escaped prisoner is the reason for for closing these. So again, as you said, we're going to have a press conference at 8.30. Hopefully we'll learn more information about uh, this search area as this manhunt continues. Yeah, and you'll be keeping us posted every step of the way. Danny Freeman, appreciate it, man. Thank you. So let's bring in Casey Jordan, a criminologist, behavioral analyst, and an attorney. I'm really interested, and thanks for joining us this morning, in, in your take on this strategy by officials there to broadcast a message from his mother in Portuguese, in his native language, from right. Brazil, to try to sort of speak to his conscience, his heart, try to get him to surrender. If he had a conscience, that might actually work. I mean, it's absolutely worth a try, uh, but it's more of a psychological assault, basically saying, we're in touch with your mother. She knows what you've done. She knows you're on the loose. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you're going to have him walk out of the woods with his hands up and go, oh, uh, I, I don't want to disappoint my mother. This is a man who, as we just reported, stabbed his girlfriend 38 times in front of her young children. He has no conscience. And of course, he is wanted for a murder about five years ago in Brazil. So it's it, the jury took 15 minutes to convict him. Uh, the sheriff is absolutely correct that he is desperate. He's on the lam. You're not going to find any any messages, you know, sent down from helicopters are going to have any impact on his uh, ability. He is not going to surrender. Are you surprised that five days into this, the search area remains as kind of confined as it is at this point? Well, credit to the police for putting such a, a careful net around that area. And yet in four days, they thought he was within a two-mile radius. We've had four sightings, and they still can't catch him. He's walking into this man's kitchen, stealing some food, and the man added, uh, po potentially took a steak knife. Now, that really changes things. If he has stolen knives, if he has a weapon, then it makes sense that they would be closing schools because, again, it's just unpredictable what he would do. But after four days, 
days, I really doubt he's still in that same area. I think that he would be expanding outward. Absolutely. We'll learn more in less than an hour at this news conference. What does it mean when authorities say, as Danny reported, that they're working to stress him? Mm. What does that mean? Well, that includes the audio recording of his mother begging him to turn himself in, trying to point out that they are on him, that there have been four sightings, that people's, you know, home security cameras are picking him up, putting the images out there. Because he's he's tuned in. I guarantee you he is hearing what we know. He's reading the papers. He is overhearing radio broadcasts. He knows we're on him. But what, what bothers me is they aren't putting out enough of a description. He's only five feet tall. Hmm. He weighs 120 pounds. He barely speaks English. And he's still wearing his prison uh, t-shirt and pants. So getting that photo out there and putting a map out there of the radius they think he might still be in is our best chance of catching him It's soon. interesting because you see the photo, but the one we're showing is just the head. It's yeah, not but not too many five feet guys yeah. uh, and unkempt, probably not shaved. If everyone's on the lookout for him, we will find him. Casey Jordan, thank you. Good to be here. Well, coming up, we'll hear from the CEO of one of the most popular weight loss drugs on the market who says his company cannot keep up with the demand. That exclusive interview is next. But I have the sense that it could actually take quite some years before we have actually fulfilled the demand out there. Danish drug maker Novo Nordisk is now one of the most valuable companies in Europe, battling luxury goods giant LVMH, which includes a number of high-end brands like Louis Vuitton and Tiffany's. At one point, Novo Nordisk even overtook LVMH. The company's share price has soared 40% this year thanks to huge demand for its weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Wagovi. Its CEO warns it will take years for them to even catch up to the current demand. CNN's Meg Terrell sat down with him for an exclusive interview. Meg, this is a great get, a fascinating interview. What else did he say? And one of the biggest questions we get about these drugs is do you have to keep taking them essentially forever in order to sustain weight loss? We asked Nova Nordisk's CEO what their data shows about that. Here's what he said. We have started showing that there is sustained weight loss over up to two years. But we also started showing that if you stop treatment, your weight will come back. Mm. So I think it's important also to note here that uh, like those who live with obesity would know, obesity is a, is a chronic uh, disease, uh, just like high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. Uh, you need to keep treating it, else the symptoms will come back. Hmm. How do you address the, the suggestion that a weight loss drug should be temporary? I would say that that's, that's based on uh, a flawed logic around uh, what is obesity. Mm. One can speculate over years of, uh, of maintained weight loss. Would that change your body's set point in terms of what is uh, your perceived normal weight? We all built by nature to store energy, to store fat for, say, uh, a cold winter or whatever. Um, and maybe we can address that over time, but all the evidence so far uh, indicates that it's actually chronic treatment. Hmm. So that's really this debate right now. And doctors do agree you do have to keep taking these. But I was talking with the FDA commissioner back in April, and he suggested and he's a cardiologist. He said perhaps with more behavioral interventions, that might not be the case. But right now, the data do support that you have to stay on the medicines. I mean, for so many reasons, that's important, right? There have been some adverse side effects. You talked to us about stomach paralysis being one of them. I'm not saying it's common, but it's one of them. The cost. It's so expensive, and a lot of employers have stopped covering this stuff through their health plans because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. 
What about the long-term impact studies, if you have to be on this for decades? Yeah, the cost is huge. I mean, $1,300 a month. The insurance situation may be improving, but it is still really tight. And in terms of the long-term safety, it's something we asked about. He noted this class of drugs has been out there for 15 years, but specifically the CNN reporting on stomach paralysis, we asked about. It hasn't been a proven link, um, but here's what he said about how they're looking at that issue. So I, I can only say that we as a company uh, take safety very seriously and we're also obliged to uh, collect all, all data that we become aware of. And uh, when we look at the totality of that data, uh, we feel that it's a very you know, well understood mechanism and it's also uh, safe and efficacious uh, based on, on the label. Uh, obviously, when you get into, uh, say, very large patient uh, populations and have millions of patients using uh, your medicine, you have different types of, of medical conditions among those patients. Um, and, and sometimes then uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, a, a causality is being mentioned. And of course, we have to look into that. But so far, there's nothing in, in what we can see that indicates uh, any particular, uh, say, safety concerns uh, like what we talked about here. Mm. I mean, millions of people are potentially going to be taking these medicines. And so you do get those background effects in the population. Europe is also looking into whether there is a link to suicidal thoughts. So far, we have not seen this link. But when so many people are taking a drug, that is something, obviously, that yeah. regulators are going to care about. I mean, the other thing people are obviously paying attention to, demand is enormous. That means shortages generally come with that, particularly given how fast this happened. You learned some more about the timeline on potential shortages. What did you learn? We did. We thought they were just going to last a few months, but he told us they may be a lot longer than that. Take a listen. I think you've limited some of the starter doses uh, for patients uh, trying to begin the medicine so that you can supply patients who are already on the medicine at the higher doses. How long do you expect that to have to continue? Yeah, we decided to limit those starter doses because it's really important for us that patients who start on treatment can try to trade up to the maintenance doses. When will this stop? Um, well, if I knew how big the demand would end up uh, being, uh, I, I could tell you. But I have the sense that it could actually take quite some years before we have actually fulfilled the demand out there. Hmm. There's more than 100 million Americans living with a BMI of above 30. And many of the, those would like to be on treatment. Hmm. We are just uh, scratching the surface. Guys, these are such huge medicines. They're affecting the economy of Denmark. Biggest drug class potentially of all time, people in the industry are saying. It's really remarkable to see. It's really, it's, I'm so fascinated by it. And the upsides for many people and the concerns for many people. Yeah. Great interview. Great get. Thanks, Thank guys. you. So several states are starting to implement these new retention laws aimed at helping improve literacy rates for kids who fell behind during the pandemic. But is it holding struggling students back? Is that the right answer? We've got a new report ahead. We are grasping at straws. We are grasping at every possible thing we can throw at it to address what was a massive issue, you know, caused by schools closing for a year. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You may be watching, getting your kids ready to go back to school. It is back to school day for millions of kids around the country. Tennessee is the latest state to hold back third graders, though, who have fallen behind 
in their reading. This is after the COVID pandemic left those big learning gaps for so many young students that they're still struggling with across the country. Testing and what, what are known as retention laws are aimed at trying to improve that. But it's a really challenging situation for children and also a tough decision for parents. Arthena Jones joins us now at the table. You've been doing such great education-focused reporting. And this is the struggle with parents. They want to do the right thing for their kid. What is the answer? Well, that's the big question. You know, research shows that children who can't read proficiently by the end of third grade are four times less likely to finish high school on time. And we know that just one in three fourth graders was proficient in reading last year, according to the nation's report card. So we're seeing more and more states turning to these retention laws, but they're controversial. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer repealed a similar law after backlash. So we went to Tennessee to speak with parents about this approach and whether they think it'll work. Ralph Rowland says reading is his favorite subject. I like Dogman books. They're probably my favorite books. But he sometimes struggles. The Knoxville, Tennessee, nine-year-old was in first grade when the COVID pandemic shut down schools. First grade is crucial for them to be able to read. So for them to not be there um, and not have... And and the parents not know what to do. um, I don't want him to be behind on reading, which will influence everything for the rest of his life. He scored below proficient on the reading or English language arts portion of Tennessee's state assessment test last spring. Under a new state law aimed at improving literacy, children like Ralph must repeat third grade unless they meet other conditions. He was promoted after attending summer school and signing up to be tutored throughout fourth grade. The problem? Tutoring in third grade wasn't enough to help Ralph pass the test. And as for summer school... They went for three to four weeks, and as far as I can tell, summer school was not targeted or intensive towards the third graders that were needing the English language arts help. So I am lacking confidence that the tutoring in third, fourth, or that the summer school is effective enough. Um, And then we're in the same position again for this coming year. What do you mean the same position? Fourth graders are going to be held to the same testing and the same retention law. Tennessee is the latest state to enact a third grade retention law amid growing concerns about learning loss from the pandemic. But does retention work? Repeating a grade works for some kids, um, not all kids. We are grasping at straws. We are grasping at every possible thing we can throw at it to address what was a massive issue, you know, caused by schools closing for a year. Some studies suggest academic gains are short-lived and the practice increases dropout rates and bullying. But a similar law adopted in Mississippi a decade ago has shown some promise. Boston University researchers finding students who repeated third grade and got extra support saw substantial gains in their English language arts scores by sixth grade compared to students narrowly promoted to fourth grade. 16 days of summer school or uh, a few hours a week of tutoring, that's not going to be effective at at remediating a full year of learning loss for a struggling kid. So um, to have them repeat a grade, like third grade, for example, might be very effective for some kids, and it depends on the quality of the intervention that they're getting. In Nashville, Marthea Sides Shaw's daughter, Echo, an avid reader, was flagged as not proficient during the school year. What does your teacher say about your reading skills? That they were really good. Despite getting straight A's, she passed the test in May. 
Her mother says Echo wasn't used to timed exams and that basing promotion on one test rather than considering children's grades and speaking to their teachers is the wrong approach. I mean, they should be going to fourth grade because they're ready to go to fourth grade. Now, about 37% of Tennessee students in grades 3 through 8 scored proficient in reading last spring. That means more than 60% did not. But while statewide data isn't yet available, Tennessee's three largest school districts told me they held back less than 2% of third graders. Mississippi, where that retention law has seen some success, they hold back between 4 and 10% of third graders each year. So some of the parents I spoke to were worried that there are too many ways that the children can get promoted through to fourth grade, even though they're struggling. They worried about its effectiveness on that front, so, yeah. yeah. That was an interesting piece. You've been doing fascinating work yeah. uh, and really, really uh, helpful work on this topic specifically. Thanks so much, Thank Thanks, Athena. Well, we are standing by for a presser in the Pennsylvania manhunt for the convicted murderer who escaped prison. We're gonna bring you, uh, bring that to you as soon as it happens. And is North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un planning a sit-down in Russia with Vladimir Putin to discuss a possible arms deal, when it could happen, what we're learning. That's all ahead. We do have some breaking news out of Pennsylvania. So this manhunt that has been ongoing for an escaped killer is now expanding. Also, two Pennsylvania school districts in that area being searched by authorities will be closed today. Now we're standing by for a news conference set to begin soon on the search for Danilo Cavalcante, who's serving life without parole for killing his ex-girlfriend. CNN's Danny Freeman joins us now. Danny, you've been covering this for several days. Uh, what are the tactics being used right now? What do we expect to hear at this press conference? Well, Phil Poppy, a lot of different tactics being used on the ground and, frankly, in the air. One of the ones that we've been speaking about all morning is that police are now using a broadcast message that was recorded by Danilo Cavalcante's mother. It's in Portuguese, and they're playing that message from helicopters and from vehicles on the road in the search area. And it's really a plea from his mother to say, surrender, turn yourself in. That's just one of the tactics. But we've also seen a lot of Pennsylvania State Police troopers uh, with their law Long guns outstanding guard in a lot of different areas just south of the prison uh, where we are and where that escape happened six days ago. And I just want to note, Phil, like you said, we just got that update from the district attorney's office that the manhunt for this inmate, this escaped inmate, Cavalcante, has expanded. And there are byproducts that have happened because of that. Two school districts, like you said, have closed. The Kennett Consolidated School District, the Unionville Chads Ford School District as well. Both of those school districts citing that the search situation has evolved. Now, after we heard that uh, announcement from these school districts, we heard from the DA's office, they are going to have a press conference at 8.30, uh, so really just in the next 30 minutes or so, to give an update on this situation. And I just want to emphasize why uh, this expanding search radius is important, Phil and Poppy, because really throughout the weekend, law enforcement officials have been emphatic that Cavalcante has been near the prison in this area, has not gotten that farther, and they've been focused on, you know, a two-mile stretch. Well, if this is true that this manhunt is expanding, that'll be the first time uh, since this all started that this search will take place further than really this two-mile radius around the area. Uh, and I just want to drill down and really emphasize to viewers, this area around the prison here in Chester County, uh, it's very diverse when it comes to the terrain. There are a lot of wooded areas. There are a lot of creeks. There are even cornfields. And police have said that has made this search incredibly difficult because there are just a lot of places for this escaped inmate and this convicted murderer to hide. Phil, Poppy? 
And we're going to take that press conference live in a half an hour. Danny Freeman, I know you'll be watching. Keep reporting on it. Keep us updated. Thank you. Meantime, this morning, the Kremlin is not commenting on Kim Jong-un's alleged plans to meet later this month with Vladimir Putin in Russia. U.S. officials say the North Korean dictator is planning to meet face-to-face -face with Putin to discuss supplying weapons and ammunition for the war on Ukraine. We're now learning that Kim wants satellite and nuclear submarine technology from Russia in exchange. Well, CNN international correspondent Paula Hancock is in Seoul, South Korea. Paula, the Kremlin has not said anything at all. You've covered these issues in this area for a long time. What's this tell you uh, about what may be happening here? Well, Phil, we have had denials from both Pyongyang and Moscow for some time, so that's not particularly uh, surprising at this point. But both Russia and uh, North Korea stand to benefit greatly from this closer alliance, not just militarily, but also politically. The first and last meeting between the current leaders of Russia and North Korea was more than four years ago. Since then, Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and his military efforts are faltering. So for Kim Jong-un, the power dynamics have changed. A large power is now dependent on him. That hasn't happened in a while. Um, the second thing he gains is the possibility of access to more oil. At the moment that Kim Jong-un is testing his ballistic missiles, particularly the long-range ones, many of which have design commonalities with Russian missiles, he can get a lot help of help there. U.S. officials believe Moscow could receive multiple types of munitions from Pyongyang in any arms deal, which could be used on the front lines in Ukraine. The Biden administration believes North Korea already delivered infantry rockets and missiles for use by Russian mercenary force Wagner late last year. Russia and North Korea have something in common, interoperability of conventional weapons. For example, North Korea's 152mm artillery ammunition and 122mm multiple rocket launcher ammunition can be used on Russian weapons immediately. U.S. officials assess Kim Jong-un may travel to Russia to meet Vladimir Putin this month. There is an Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok next week. Letters of support have been exchanged between the two leaders. Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shuigu, was given the red carpet treatment by Kim in Pyongyang in July. The North's military capabilities were on full display. And South Korea's intelligence agency says a second Russian delegation visited at the start of August. By August 8th, a Russian plane is believed to have transferred unknown military supplies from Pyongyang, no evidence or destination given. Pyongyang and Moscow deny any potential arms deal. Kim is becoming more paranoid than normal over the last four or five years. And so for him, this alliance achieves, makes him look less isolated. It provides a psychological boost for him and his inner circle. Now, both countries are also united by one enemy, the United States. Both countries are interested in seeing an alternative world order where the U.S. is less powerful and where U.N. Security Council resolutions are less able to be imposed. Phil, Poppy. Paula Handcox reporting in Seoul. Thank you very much. Well, joining us now is former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, Ambassador Bolton, thanks for joining us. Uh, the actual news itself, the possibility of a meeting uh, between Kim Jong-un and President Putin and Kim leaving North Korea to travel to Russia, what does that tell you? Well, I think this is a big win for Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans in virtually every respect, certainly in the PR aspect of it, uh, but, but in the ties that it will help uh, increase between North Korea 
uh, and Russia. It's mutually beneficial to both in Russia getting uh, weapons and ammunition. It opens the possibility of a kind of conveyor belt. If China doesn't want to supply weapons directly, it can supply them to North Korea, and then lo and behold, they could then in turn be supplied to Russia. But from Kim's point of view, for years and years of being dependent on China, for example, people estimate North Korea gets 90 percent of its oil from China. Now he's got a real possibility to open up oil and gas uh, coming from Russia. And in this complex relationship between uh, Russia and China, while they're clearly growing closer and closer, Russia's worried about China's aspirations uh, in the region. For example, the critical naval base and port city of Vladivostok, right to the east of North Korea, uh, was ruled by China as recently as the mid-19th century. So Putin gains by tightening the relationship between uh, North Korea and Russia. Kim Jong-un gains now by being able to play the two of off against each other, as his grandfather used to do back in the days of the Cold War. Uh, and, and overall, I think it's another example of the U.S. being asleep while significant geopolitical developments are underway. You think the U.S. is asleep? You're talking about the Biden administration? Well, I'm talking about many Americans. I mean, look, I think the 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 uh, pursuit of uh, the effort to get a nuclear deal with North Korea now three decades long has proven to be a complete waste of time. I think this recent uh, story about uh, Kim and Putin should tell us uh, how significant it is that we focus on the end right. of North Korea, not dealing there. with North Korea, but the reunification of the peninsula. So, Ambassador Bolton, there you talked about oil and what get what getting oil from Russia could mean for North Korea. But what about the weapons technology that North Korea wants from Russia? If it gets what it wants on those fronts, what is the immediate risk to the West and the more long term risk? Well, I think North Korea has been receiving clandestine assistance on missiles and the nuclear programs from China and Russia for a long time. They they used to admit it. In recent years, they've denied it. I'm not sure those denials are credible. The North Korean missile force is based on Russian-supplied technology, formerly Scud missiles. Uh, but the the potential now is very significant because while North Korea has demonstrated both that it can detonate nuclear devices uh, and that it can fire missiles that have a range to hit the continental United States. It has not yet demonstrated it has the targeting capability uh, to hit the places it aims at, or necessarily the technology to bring a nuclear weapon back into the atmosphere in a warhead that's secure enough that uh, it's not destroyed on reentry. Russia obviously has both those capabilities. I'm sure that's what North Korea wants. Ambassador, can I circle back to what you said about the, the idea of the end of people being asleep at the wheel or asleep at the switch to some degree and the end of North Korea being kind of the necessary uh, outcome at this point, uh, not whatever has been happening, I think, over several administrations, several decades at this point. Um, I guess my question is, how, how does that happen, right? If you look at allies in the region, while many people look at the current administration's policy as being the Indo-Pacific policy as being entirely China-based, when you look at the relationship between Japan and South Korea, uh, that has formed and I think evolved over the course of the last couple of years, you could say that that also has to do with North Korea as well. Uh, what's the, the gap between that and ending North Korea, as you propose? 
Well, the the division of North Korea into South and South Korea in 1945 was intended to be temporary. Right. Uh, just as we've seen the division between East and West Germany end, but for decades. Uh, American leaders in both parties have just routinely accepted that this hereditary communist dictatorship has to be the strangest form of government on earth today is just going to go on forever. And I think we need to begin with a psychological and political change that we do not accept North Korea as a legitimate state. And I think but cooperation between South Korea and Japan I understand. and the U.S. Is a, is a big step toward it. The policy is simple, but, but uh, not one that the administrations, Republican or Democratic, have been willing to follow, which is uh, even more significant sanctions against North Korea and the determination and uh, making it clear to both China and Russia that we expect that we're going to do what we said we'd do in 1945 uh, and bring the regime back into unification with the South. If we don't focus on the policy, it won't happen. You worked in the Trump administration, but have since been very critical of the way that Trump has interacted with, courtship with, if you will, Kim and Putin. I'm interested in your take on how one of his Republican competitors in the primary, Vivek Ramaswamy, chose to not answer questions about whether he thinks Putin is a, is a war criminal, because it reminds me of some questions that then-President Trump was asked about Putin. Here's that exchange with reporters yesterday in New Hampshire. I think that Putin is a dictator, and I think that there are open questions that need to be adjudicated by the ICCJ. We have an ICCJ for a reason. My job as the U.S. president is to advance American interests. So I think Putin's actions have been craven. Not much I will say, and I've said it all along. We have to get the facts before we get to the bottom of that. You previously called the International Criminal Court illegitimate when it issued that warrant uh, to arrest Putin, accusing him of war crimes. What do you make of Vivek Ramaswamy not answering the question of whether or not he thinks Putin is a war criminal? Well, I, I think Ramaswamy reminds me an awful lot of Donald Trump. Uh, he has very firm opinions on subjects he knows absolutely nothing about, and this was an example of it. And if he supports the International Criminal Court, as he appeared to do in that statement, I hope he reaffirms that and makes clear why he thinks the ICC is such a good idea. Uh, look, this is, this is something that ultimately uh, is going to have to be resolved either by the Russians themselves or by the Ukrainians. Uh, and, and the main point is that, that Ramaswamy has made other statements about this war uh, and about what he's going to do to try and solve it. Like, uh, like Trump said, he would put Zelensky and Putin in a room and mm -hmm. he'd have it solved in 24 hours. Uh, Ramaswamy is going to go to Moscow, convince Putin to break the alliance with China and end the war that way. I mean, they, they, they might as well be in kindergarten talking about uh, a very complex situation. But uh, there's no mistake. I think Ramaswamy emulates Trump every time he can. Mm. Ambassador John Bolton, we really appreciate your perspective this morning. Thanks. Glad to be with you. And we are less than two hours away from the start of the impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who is accused of repeatedly abusing his office to help a donor. Now, he denies all wrongdoing and has recently downplayed very serious allegations. Actually, if you kind of kept up, I'm I'm, you could read that I'm responsible for the JFK assassination <laughs> and for 9-11 and everything in between. Just We're going to be live. Me.
We are going to be live outside the state capitol next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In less than two hours, the historic impeachment trial of suspended Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is set to begin. He's facing multiple allegations, including bribery, abuse of power, and retaliation against whistleblowers. Accusations of corruption and scandal have dogged Paxton since he took office back in 2015. CNN's Ed Lavendera is live at the Capitol in Austin for us. Ed, what are we expecting this morning? This is a big deal down in Texas. Uh, and a historic impeachment process. But as best we can tell, it's a fog of uncertainty as to how all of this is going to unfold. Remember, Paxton was impeached overwhelmingly by Republicans in the House of Representatives. Now it moves over to the Senate side for the impeachment trial. And the question is whether Republicans, which dominate that Senate chamber, will convict one of their own. Just days before the start of his impeachment trial, Ken Paxton showed up at a rally to kick off his wife's state Senate re-election campaign. Please welcome to the stage my husband, the love of my life, my best friend, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. The suspended Republican attorney general was impeached on 20 articles, including charges of retaliating against whistleblowers, abuse of power and bribery, as well as misconduct involving an alleged affair. Paxton used this moment to pound the theme that he's the victim of a political witch hunt. Actually, if you kind of kept up, you could read that I'm responsible for the JFK assassination and for 9-11 and everything in between. Paxton's impeachment trial begins Tuesday in the Texas State Senate, and it features some of the highest profile and unique legal characters in the state. Paxton is represented by Dan Cogdell and Tony Busby. They've described the impeachment of Paxton as a drive-by shooting. This was a sham. It was a sham from the get-go. To say this case is not about politics has the credibility, the believability, and the sincerity of the fellow that's trying to convince his wife that he goes to the strip joint for the food. It's not about the naked women, sweetheart. It's about the food. Nonsense. It's definitionally political. Nonsense. Prosecuting the case against Paxton are the legendary Rusty Harden and Dick DeGuerin. For decades, they've worked the biggest cases in the state. A few months ago, when Paxton's lawyers ripped the impeachment process, CNN asked Rusty Harden to comment, and he referred us to this classic scene from the 1992 Joe Pesci courtroom comedy, My Cousin Vinny. Everything that guy just says, bull****. But the political stakes are sky high. In May, Paxton was overwhelmingly impeached by Texas House Republicans, 121 to 23. And Paxton is vowing political retribution against those Republicans who voted against him. Let's clean house. There are 31 state senators. One of them is Angela Paxton, the attorney general's wife, but she will not be allowed to vote on her husband's impeachment. There are 12 Democrats in the Senate, and prosecutors need 21 votes to remove Paxton from office. The question is whether nine Republicans will vote against Paxton. Veteran Republican political strategist Brendan Steinhauser says it's not clear how this trial will play out. There's a lot of political pressure coming from all sides. This is unprecedented, so they're trying to do their constitutional duty. They're trying to do the legally, morally, 
ethically right thing. They don't know what that is yet until they really dive into it and see the evidence. Paxton has enjoyed support from Donald Trump and among Republican voters. He's a great man. Steinhauser says Paxton is benefiting from Trump's attacks that the justice system is weaponized against politicians like them. That alignment is important for Paxton because it helps him. It gives him some political support among the grassroots voters and activists in the Republican Party of Texas. And it makes it more difficult for state senators and state representatives to impeach and then convict him. Phil, there is a chance that all of this could be dismissed before it even starts. Senators are expected to consider a wave of motions that and, and uh, motions that would essentially uh, go, do away with most of the impeachment uh, articles of impeachment. So it's not clear exactly how that's going to play out in, in the coming hours. And we expect to, if this does go to trial, we do expect to see Ken Paxton uh, put on the witness stand. His lawyers say that he will not testify, but impeachment managers say they will insist on calling him to testify and how all of this unfold will take place over the next several weeks if it gets that far. Phil? And you'll be reporting on it every step of the way. Ad Laventera, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, so we're standing by for this news conference in just several minutes on an update for that search for the convicted murderer, Daniello Cavalcante. He's been on the run since Thursday. We've just learned that search area is expanding. Stay with us. The great real estate builder, the last guy here, he didn't build a damn thing. When the last guy was here, you were shipping jobs to China. Now we're bringing jobs home from China. So that was President Biden taking jabs at former President Trump. He was speaking to union workers yesterday in Philadelphia. The president was touting job creation and organized labor in an effort to try to shore up support from a core part of his base in the primary. Trump is also expected to return to the campaign trail this week after three weeks off of it. He's got appearances slated in Iowa and South Dakota. Meanwhile, Trump's rivals fanning out across New Hampshire today. That's also where Vivek Ramaswamy spent Labor Day weekend. He's been going head to head with former Vice President Mike Pence ever since that debate rumble. Over the weekend, Pence called Ramaswamy, quote, just wrong on foreign policy. In response, Ramaswamy said Pence is misrepresenting his positions but that he's open to talking with him. Let's talk about all of this. A lot of headlines. Semaphore Politics reporter Shelby Talcott is with us. Also, Maura Gillespie, who served as the Deputy Chief of Staff to Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and Democratic strategist and former Executive Director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smeichel. Good to have you guys back. Welcome to the table, Shelby. That guy, not Trump, that guy or the last guy, that's how he intentionally chose to refer to Trump yesterday on the trail. What's Biden doing? Yeah, I mean, he's he's trying to distinguish his economic record from Trump's because it is so important to voters. Every time I'm out on the ground, the economy is one of the top issues that voters talk about. And it's not necessarily always in Biden's favor, because even though the numbers show one thing, the voters, as you guys have talked about a lot, aren't necessarily feeling it. And so what Biden's trying to do here is show that, hey, no, my economic record actually is really good, and you don't want to go back to the last guy. Now, on the flip side, when I talk to Trump's aides, they also recognize that the economy is a top issue. So they're doing the same exact thing, trying to distinguish their economic record from Biden's and saying, no, Biden's is the bad one. So this is going to be a really big issue, not just heating up in a primary, but going into a general election. Basil, along those lines, you saw 
Look, those were sharper words from President Biden when it comes to Trump, even if he doesn't mention him, as Poppy noted, that's a, a long been a practice of his uh, than we've seen. You also have Sarah Fisher at Axios uh, reported earlier with us. Our team at CNN has matched it, the ad buy that's coming with the kind of opening weekend of the NFL season, also talking about uh, the economy and economics, uh, contrasting with what it was at the end of the Trump administration to now. Um, is this the thing that helps them turn the corner that I've been told for the better part of the last two years they were just about to turn? But well, yeah, so let's talk about the ad buy for a second. If you if you consider that the number of swing states, the number of swing state voters has decreased over the last few cycles, yeah. and you consider the fact that he has not only had an ad buy in those states, but also targeted towards uh, communities of color. So that base vote, in addition to what he's doing in terms of talking to labor out, out on, uh, on the campaign trail. So it's a, it's, it's a highly targeted message that I do think works with Republicans who don't necessarily want to vote for Donald Trump and independent voters who have supported Democrats in the past and want to continue to do so. I do acknowledge that there are parts of the party that are uh, uh, concerned. You know, if you're a young voter looking for your new home or you're looking to stay in a city like New York and rent, you know, some of those prices might be uh, too affordable, too uh, unaffordable for you. But having said that, I think there are bigger parts of his uh, strategy, particularly when you look at uh, student loan uh, repayments, for example, that I do think engage those younger voters and can help bring that base out. But he lost on that in the, I mean, the, the first strategy of the, the Supreme Court, and now they're trying to figure out if the other way is going to work. Maura, uh, last night I went back and reread this great piece Peter Baker wrote a month ago in The Times, and it was about why there's this disconnect between how the economy is doing and how people feel. And I thought this was so interesting. He wrote, what may prove more vexing to Mr. Biden and his strategists is the possibility that his political prospects may be decoupled from such issues. In past generations, Americans were more reactive to events in evaluating their presidents. While in recent years, they've been more locked into their partisan corner, meaning it's different now than it was. The way voters in both parties reacted to numbers on the economy was different now than it is different now than it was before. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. I think people are so stuck in their political beliefs that they're not looking objectively at anything. So whatever Biden's touting about infrastructure, you're already seeing Republicans who are touting it too, saying that, you know, it's good for our district, it's good for us, like here I am as a leader. They're not being objective in the fact that some of these people didn't vote for it. Um, and people at home, they're looking at the Biden administration talking about inflation going down, yet, Prices for groceries, for gas, for housing, all have gone up mm -hmm. 20, 30 percent and higher. So there is a disconnect there. But again, it's easier to keep your political helmets on and just stay in your kind of corners than really look at things, uh, you know, objectively. And it's going to impact uh, voters at the poll, you know, as they go to 2024 uh, and beyond. Shelby, to, to Basil's point, it was as if the Biden campaign had listened to what Basil said about a very targeted subset of voters that they needed to focus on last hour or two hours ago, two hours ago, and then immediately bought ads there. That's how it works, right? <laughs> that is how it works. Like that. Um, my question is, does the Trump campaign, when, when you talk to their team, are they thinking through things like that in a general election of like, here's our kind of universe of voters, persuadables or people that we need to come home and targeting them uh, with kind of how their operations operating right now. Yeah, I was actually talking to some of Trump's team last night about this situation. And one of the things they noted was they view union workers as a possible get that they might not have had in the past because of story, because of Biden's yeah. tumultuous relationship. If you ask the UAW, they might. Exactly. 
Um, and so that's one of their kind of sect of voters that they might not have necessarily had in the past, but this time around they think they're gettable. And so you should expect them to kind of find ways to hone in on that sect of workers and try to get them over to their side. Yeah, I, I, it, going back to the question uh, that you asked earlier, there's always been this tension between fact and faith, mm -hmm. right? What are the actual numbers versus what do I believe? Mm -hmm. And that, that's a universal sort of tension in politics. But one of the things that I think the Biden team really needs to do in, the, in as you talk about this decoupling yeah. is say the good economy that you're experiencing, even if you have some concerns about it, is also aligned with good governance. That's what we do. That's what Biden-Harris has done and will continue to do. What do you get on the other side of that? You get turmoil, you get chaos. Mm -hmm. And if you are concerned about a good economy going forward, you vote for the party that gives you good governance and good policy and not the chaos. Um, and I think that has to be part of that, of that very important Biden-Harris message for 2024. I hear you, but I just if you're sitting at home and I just came from a week in our wonderful state of Minnesota and if I'm sitting there and I'm feeding my kids and I'm going to buy eggs and they do cost me more and my mortgage is at 7 percent, you know, if I'm trying to get a new one so I can't afford to get a new, new home and my rent is too high, I'm thinking I don't want chaos, but my family can't. I can't sustain their right. life like this. And I think this is where candidates that are running for the 2024 GOP spot have a real opportunity to capitalize on it. We need strong leadership in America. We need someone who understands the issues and who can present a plan. And I think that's what these candidates should be doing because Donald Trump doesn't have a plan. Stand by, guys. I want to get to this uh, breaking news on this manhunt for the uh, convicted murderer in Pennsylvania. Let's listen in. Pennsylvania State Police. Joining me today is District Attorney Deb Ryan and Chief County Detective David Sassa uh, from the Chester County DA's office. As you know, on the morning of Thursday, August 31st, inmate Danello Cavalcante escaped from the Chester County Prison. Since the day of the escape, there have been several credible sightings within an area I described to you yesterday within Pocopson Township. We had one additional sighting of Cavalcante last evening within that perimeter and conducted a multiple hours long search of the area, but were unable to locate him. Early this morning, we were notified by security at Longwood Gardens that they had trail camera photos taken on their property, which appear to be Cavalcante. This area is just south of the perimeter. Investigators quickly examined those photos, and we can confirm it is Cavalcante. The photos confirm that Cavalcante has not changed his appearance, but also that he has obtained a backpack, a duffel sling type pack, and a hooded sweatshirt. Cavalcante is depicted in the photo walking north at 8.21 p.m. and then back south through the same location at 9.33 p.m. Working with the district attorney's office, several steps were quickly taken, including shifting our perimeter in an attempt to uh, contain him between the southern end of the established perimeter and an area south of Route 1. The district attorney and I had a lengthy conversation yesterday afternoon with the superintendents of a number of area school districts. We had assured them that if anything changed, we would promptly notify them. As promised, that notification occurred at approximately 5 a.m., resulting in a decision by the Unionville, Chads Ford, and Kennett Consolidated School Districts to cancel classes for the day. We will continue to work with those districts to determine what will occur in coming days. A reverse 911 call was sent out to the residents within a 1.5-mile area of the camera that was located, and that occurred at 5.27 a.m. This was expanded to three miles at around 7 a.m. 
We had already requested and begun to mobilize resources from additional federal agencies last evening to include the FBI and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. People and equipment from those agencies is being mobilized and added to the search as we speak. We continue to ask for the public's help by familiarizing themselves with the photograph and the description of Cavalcante. We are also asking people in an expanded area from the Pocopson Township area south to be alert and to call us with anything suspicious. We ask them to please secure homes, outbuildings, and vehicles. Cavalcante has clearly already obtained some clothing and unknown other supplies, and we want to minimize any opportunity to obtain anything more. It is important we keep pressure on him as we continue this hunt. We are also asking residents and businesses anywhere in or near this area to check their home and business security cameras and call us with anything suspicious that they might observe. A tip line has been established and we can be reached at 717-562-2987. That was 717-562-2987. We remind everyone that a reward totaling up to $10,000 has been offered for information leading to the capture of Danilo Cavalcante. Uh, what I would also ask is that people consider signing up for um, the, the alerts here in uh, Chester County. And it's, uh, they can sign up at readychesco.org, readychesco.org. And with that, we will be happy to take any questions that you might have at this time. Uh, oh, and I'm sorry, just one second. If we could display the photos here. I can start with the question why he's getting those photos off the wheel. believe that he's now actually out of that two mile radius that you were initially looking at yesterday? Yes, we believe he is just south of that radius, and that's why, again, we've shifted that perimeter now to include that area. What I can tell you is I think that, it, uh, that what's occurred is that that pressure that we've been putting on him is working. We squeezed him hard enough uh, over a period of a few days able to get any relief and managed to find a place to get out. Obviously, I wish we would have been able to capture him without him getting through that perimeter, but, uh, but it is also not shocking. It's dark, it's a large area, and uh, not to make excuses, I mean, it's, it's just difficult terrain and things. Is this area more remote or is it more open? No, actually, I think this is a little more open. Uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that, that he's there. The other thing I'm encouraged by is that we realized within just a few hours uh, where he was, and so he's not had a tremendous amount of time to uh, to move a long distance. And so, again, it gives us another opportunity to now try and, uh, uh, and, and squeeze him within that perimeter. Do you think he walked across Baltimore Pike? How do you think, I mean, are you looking at the possibility that he crossed that? Is he oh, we're certainly looking into that possibility. Um, again, where he was spotted, he was not across Baltimore Pike there. But, uh, but but obviously we consider anything, and, and the perimeter has expanded south of Route One as well. Is this trail camera monitored um, either by law enforcement or by Longwood twenty four seven? No, it was a private camera, and uh, and an individual uh, checked it um, and and notified us promptly. It's not, Do you know how it's not a Longwood Gardens camera. Uh, it's my understanding that they allow some others to put cameras on their property, and that individual. Uh, provided the information. Any idea how we got the supplies? Were these the result of burglaries? Uh, I can't confirm at this point where he got those supplies. Again, uh, obviously uh, picked them up somewhere uh, along the way. So obviously he got into a structure, a car, uh, something, and obtained uh, you know, some clothing. In fact, um, we have the pictures up here now. 
You can see from, uh, from this picture, uh, he's got a, a sling-type duffel bag. You can also see shoulder straps. In another photo here that you'll see in just a minute, he's got a backpack on, uh, on his back as well. So he's got two packs. Uh, he also, in another picture you'll see, he's obtained a hooded sweatshirt. If we can... Uh... And so what I would tell you is that... Um, you know, I mentioned that there were two different times. So what we believe happened is he, he, uh, he walked into that area, was likely not well-oriented, headed north, probably ran into the perimeter, realized he couldn't go that way, and turned the opposite direction and came back through the camera a second time. So this is when, with the pack on and the hoodie, he's headed north actually here, and then about uh, roughly an hour later, is coming back south without the hoodie on. That photo is from when? 9.30? Um, so it's, uh, let me get the time here. It was, it, yeah, it's the, the time is an hour off that's de depicted on the camera. I'm sorry, give me just a minute to find my times here. I'll get that for you here in just a minute. But it was about an hour apart. It was roughly 8.20 and 9.30. We've heard 10.30 for the shirt off. I understand that. Again, the, the, that the time stamp on the photo should be 9. I mean, the time stamp is an hour off. It's actually 9.30. And, uh, the other one's 8.30. And, and the other one was uh, 8.30 or thereabouts. Uh, 9.33 is the one. 8.21 was the first one. So he's headed north at 8.21. It says 9.21. And then he's headed south at uh, 9.33. We're expanding the perimeter, but we're also eliminating the northern end of that perimeter. So the community that was surrounded by that won't be surrounded by it now. So if you went to the southern end of what we had established previously as a perimeter and go south from there, uh, down and across Baltimore Pike, uh, that would be the, uh, the current uh, area is this making a mistake then, or is this just another attempt, another successful attempt of him evading authority at this point? Oh, I think he's absolutely succumbing to the pressure, and, and yes, he's trying to escape, and, and that's what he managed to do. He found, a, he found a point that he could squeeze through that perimeter, and he traveled south. We'll now expand that perimeter or, and, and, and move it so that we can try and encapsulate him again, and we're already actively uh, searching those areas. It's been six days. I mean, do we know anything more about his background? Does he have any survival skills? I mean, he's been foraging. Clearly, he's been stealing stuff. What can you tell the public? I mean, this guy's clearly cunning, and he's been able to evade you guys for six days now. We're not aware of any uh, formal training in terms of survival skills. You're dealing with someone who's desperate and who doesn't want to be caught. And so, if he can find something, some clothing, if he can find some shelter, if he can find some, uh, some food, he is going to take advantage of whatever he finds. And that's why, again, we pressure him uh, to not allow him the luxury of rest. And then we're asking the public to help us by making sure things are secure so that we can minimize his opportunities to obtain those things that he doesn't otherwise have. He doesn't have, to our knowledge, he doesn't have caches out there or any supplies that he can go to and, and obtain, as we've seen in some other searches we've done. Uh, that's not the case here. I believe this was just an opportunity that he took to get out of the jail. And, uh, and once out, 
he's now uh, he's now winging it, uh, and so he does what he has to do to try and avoid escape or try and avoid capture. Rather. From his mother convince him to turn himself back in? Uh, we have not uh, since yesterday, uh, and we'll have to evaluate uh, whether whether we think that will be effective going Longwood forward. Longwood Gardens is closed today. <coughs> Are you going to be searching Longwood Gardens? Longwood, Longwood Gardens is closed, and uh, uh, we will be in that area, uh, not only Longwood Gardens, but the entire area uh, we will be uh, pushing through. He could walk to Delaware today if, if was able to walk that far. Are you coordinating with officials in Delaware? Delaware we are. Police? And what, does that change anything if he crosses the state line? It really doesn't. There's a federal warrant that the marshals have obtained for him. Uh, that's, that's, again, it's federal warrant, so uh, it covers us regardless of where he goes. Um, you would still be at this point, I don't believe he has made it to Delaware. I believe he's still well into Pennsylvania, and, uh, and, and we're going to act on that and continue to pressure him. But at the same time, we, uh, we always look at options. Even while we were, uh, we were looking at that perimeter, as I said to you yesterday, we follow up on any tip. We don't discount anything. And certainly that's why, you know, um, in, in this case, it was a, a really solid tip, but uh, we've had lots of others. We follow up on those as well. And on the chance that he has managed to get out of that area, and certainly, um, you know, even prior to this, we had already been coordinating with Delaware. What's the latest on the investigation into how he was actually able to get out of prison? Is there any clarity on what happened? Uh, my understanding is there's not going to be anything released on that uh, uh, right away. I think the investigation is still ongoing. Um, I can tell you that uh, there have been many interviews done, um, and, and both in an effort to investigate the escape but also to assist us uh, in looking at any plans, any contacts he may have had on the outside, that kind of thing. So that all factors into it. And uh, unless the district attorney has something else to add, I would, I would just say that there, we're not in a position to start releasing anything on that What's yet. What's the today. situation at the prison now? Are the inmates still on lockdown? Are there transports going in and out of there? Uh, I can't answer that. With the search, you all have been saying that it's a heavily wooded area. Can you describe to the public what that means with your global <coughs> terrain? Because some people are saying, oh, why haven't you caught them yet? It's been six days. Where are the dogs? That kind of stuff. Yeah. You describe what it's like out there. What I would describe to you, you know, again, you've heard me refer to other searches. I mean, um, the terrain here, while uh, one would think, okay, we're not in the middle of a uh, national forest or something else, um, what you have, though, are significant parcels of wooded area with a lot of undergrowth, so thick that um, our searchers can't be more than a couple of yards apart where they uh, at times lose sight of one another. It's so thick that they have to hack their way through or go around and try and make sure that they've still covered that area because they, they just you can't walk through it. Uh, that's certainly not everywhere, but there are large patches of, of that kind of uh, undergrowth in the woods. You know, additionally, one of the challenges that you have here that you don't have out in uh, a larger forest is you've got um, people with large yards, parcels of land, multiple acres with outbuildings and, uh, um, you know, uh, shrubbery, landscaping, all kinds of things, sheds that, uh, that afford uh, an opportunity to hide. Uh, again, none of it insurmountable, but it makes for additional challenges when you're searching those areas. Uh, there are a lot of places that, that someone can hide. And, and again, you would think, you know, we're in a, a closer to an urban area here, there wouldn't be all of these forests. There are. And uh, 
what's so, the long-term game plan here? I mean, it's been six days. If this goes into a seventh, eighth, goes into next week or a month, I mean, are you going to start scaling down resources or just keep throwing? The long-term uh, game plan is as long as we believe we're being effective, and I do believe, we will continue with this search. We will continue a hard search and we'll capture them. We've had searches that have gone uh, well in excess of a month. Uh, we've kept the pressure on. He's a bad guy. He needs to be in custody, and we're determined to capture him. So as long as we have the ability to uh, identify areas that are suitable for us to be searching, we will continue to do that. And again, I'm confident that in the long run, he will be captured. You mentioned the hooded sweatshirt. What's the current description? Do you have a clothing description or anything? I don't have a color or anything on that sweatshirt yet at this point. We're still analyzing some things. One of the challenges is with a, a picture like this, it's uh, you know night vision or infrared. And so colors don't translate easily. We're having some people take a look at it and see if we can make a determination from it. But I don't have a color or anything to uh, provide you at this point. How did it come about that state police uh, we're going to break away. You've been watching a press conference in Westchester, Pennsylvania, related to an individual who is a convicted felon uh, with no uh, prospect of actually getting out of prison for murder. He's been on the run for six days now, and they're just giving an update in a press conference for the first time. Joining us now, CNN's Danny Freeman, Casey Jordan, criminologist and behavioral analyst and attorney, and Charles Ramsey, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former Philadelphia police commissioner. Danny, as our correspondent that's been on the ground there for the entirety of this search. What stood out to you? What was the biggest news that you took away from that? Well, the biggest news, Phil, is what we were teasing a little bit earlier in this hour, that it does appear now that this search has expanded uh, quite a bit. Initially, law enforcement officials were saying that the search was really focused to a two-mile radius just south of the Chester County Prison, where we are right here. But now, last night, uh, law enforcement officials say that this man, Danilo Cavalcante, was actually spotted on trail cameras in Longwood Gardens around 9.30 at night. I, I hope we have the images. Uh, you can see him. It's, it, it's kind of a, uh, an eerie picture. It's him shirtless with a backpack, still potentially wearing the uh, prison-issued pants. Again, captured on a trail camera around uh, 8.21 and then again at around 9.30 last night on Monday night. Uh, and, Phil, I just want to describe Longwood Gardens uh, just for viewers in case they're unfamiliar with this particular area. It's a very popular uh, tourist spot. Also, locals in the greater Philly region, they enjoy going there. It's a 200-acre sprawling space with a lot of gardens, uh, a lot of uh, lush open meadows as well, and also winding paths. And this uh, Longwood Gardens had been closed because of the investigation during part of the weekend, but then it seemed like the search was being focused a little bit north of there. Now, in this press conference, we just learned the Pennsylvania State Police said that they've cleared mm -hmm. some of the more northern parts uh, of their search, and now they're looking at Longwood Gardens. But again, like I said, 200 acres, it's a huge space there. Uh, and we've been seeing a lot of Pennsylvania State Police troopers and other police uh, presence all surrounding that area there. Commissioner Ramsey, you were uh, the police chief in Philadelphia. As you listened to this and you heard that they saw him again, someone saw him again last night, and that he's getting into structures or buildings and getting clothes and one would think maybe cash, some sort of food, sustenance. What are your biggest questions this morning as they now expand the search radius? Well, first of all, they're doing the right thing. They've adjusted their search area. They did uh, uh, recommend and they followed the recommendation to get those schools closed. It's not so much that the schools themselves are in danger, but you have to look at the area 
where the students are drawn from, because now you've got kids that will be standing on side roads and so forth, waiting for buses to be picked up. So you don't want to expose them uh, to anything at all. He's already apparently made entry into something. It could be a vehicle, could be a shed, could be a home. Uh, and that's why you see the change of clothes. You see the backpacks. He needs money. He needs food. He needs transportation. Mm -hmm. And so he's still desperate. And he's going to continue to do whatever he can do to get out of that area, because right now he's pinned in. And it's difficult terrain. It's taking time to be able to thoroughly search it. But eventually they'll get him. But in the meantime, you just hope that no one else is uh, put in any kind of uh, danger because he is desperate and he will break into a house. He will uh, carjack a vehicle if he can. Those kinds of things you have to be very, very concerned about. And he may have access to a weapon now if he broke into a home. Uh, he could have a knife. He could have an edge weapon. He could have a gun. Casey, to Commissioner Ramsey's point, I think this is my question listening to the press conference, that this was kind of framed as a positive result because they have the stress efforts, the pressure on him are working. That's why he went outside of the search radius. Um, ex explain that, if you can, because it's been five and a half, six days at this point. Right. And they're trying to triangulate the information. They're getting a lot of tips. Now, we know that at least two, maybe up to four burglaries in that area could be attributed to him. And, of course, we have that really surprising testimony of the man. He broke into his house in his yeah. kitchen, yeah. and he, he flashed his, the lights five times, and the guy flashed the light back. I mean, the temerity of that, like, thanks for letting me go, and out the door with food. Uh, but people will be missing that duffel bag, that sweatshirt, that, uh, that backpack. And the more they can ask the public to help, has anyone taken clothes off your clothesline? Has anyone broken into your shed or your basement? You have to remember he had the foresight to, to escape on Labor Day weekend. So a lot of people have been away and may not even know that their homes or garages have been broken into. As they get that data, yes, I believe this is, this is him who broke into my house. They will be able to get a clearer path and map it out where they think he is going. And that's why they keep expanding the perimeter. I think it would be really helpful if they mapped it for us, if they showed us exactly where the sightings were, where the burglaries were, because the public, I'm convinced, are going to solve this, mostly with their home security cameras. And at least there are a lot of those now, ring yeah. doorbell cameras, et cetera. Commissioner Ramsey, I thought it was interesting. One of the journalists in that room asked about, well, what if he walks into Delaware? And the chief there said, basically, no issue. We've got jurisdiction uh, to keep searching wherever he goes. There's a federal warrant here. But that would complicate things for them big time, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, the Delaware State Police and others from that area would be involved in a search, but they would just simply shift the area uh, that they're searching. So, I mean, this guy is wanted for homicide. He is a very dangerous individual. They will use every resource they have available to them. And of course, they already have the U.S. Marshals, FBI and others that are involved in the search. So they'll just uh, continue to search. Hopefully he doesn't make it to Delaware. Right. But if he does... It's not going to make any difference. They will keep All up right. the pressure. Good to know. All right. Casey Jordan, Charles Ramsey, our Danny Freeman was on the ground. Thank you guys very much. We're going to keep following this. Uh, a lot of news clearly still to come on it. And CNN News Central is going to start and take you more of this right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.